What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I know there are women like my best friends who would have gotten out of there the minute their boyfriend gave them a gun to hide. But I didn't. I gotta admit the truth, it turned me on. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles. And this week we're continuing our season of Scorsese with part two of our exploration of Goodfellas. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. How's it going, everybody? My name is John Rook. I'm a writer, producer, host, and VO artist here in San Diego, California. Hey, John, do you ever like, because, you know, we get comments on our, our, our videos, our podcasts. Do you ever like see a comment that makes you go, wait, do I do that? Is that a problem? Is that like <laughs> that throws you into a moment of insecurity? I don't know if necessarily that throws me into a moment of insecurity, but I have at times seen people who um, don't like some of the things that I say in the show, but that's, you know, that's standard operating procedure for the life of Roca. So I don't know uh, why, what are you leading to? Well, this one in particular, there was a comment, it was, I think it was up on YouTube and it was basically, it was basically why is Steve Morris so concerned with whether or not these are good people or bad people. Like, why is judging the morality of characters important? And can't we just, they're just people. People are, you know, like, can't we just enjoy the movie for what it is without judging the characters? And also said, like, you know, artists shouldn't, which I agree with, by the way, if you're an actor playing a character, you shouldn't be judging that character. That's, that doesn't go well. And sure. I went, I look at everything through this lens, you know? And so I just went, you know, it's, it's like a core part of me. And so I wanted to bring it up. Like, I don't know how to talk about Goodfellas without analyzing the choices that the characters are making on a, uh, and uh, for a lot of reasons, but on a moral scale. And I just thought I would bring that up but as we're jumping in. Like, I just went, wow, you know, how would I do this if I didn't do that? I think it's funny because for me, having known you so long, that's how I've always uh, accepted that you look at things. So yeah, I've never noticed it as an issue in our show, but you know, that's because we've been friends for so long before we even started doing the show. So, but for the outside perspective is an interesting conversation to have, but I also think someone shouldn't tell you how to analyze the film and how to look through the film just as you're not telling other people what prism to see the film through. Like you're not saying you all need who are listening to us need to see the film through the, whether they're good or bad. You're expressing your opinion. And this person who had an issue with it, uh, he's not telling you, uh, Steve is not telling you how to see the movie. He's telling you how he sees the movie. And so I think it's really important for people who listen to any show or any breakdown or any analysis. It's that person's analysis. It's not the analysis. And it's not your analysis if you don't agree with it. And that's okay. So yeah, I, I don't have a problem with it. Never even felt it was an issue it's brought up it's you know when you make certain comments in the past we've talked about it um sure. and i've had those issues as well and brought them up in in analysis but yeah i've never seen an issue with it, it it's so funny because it did it did take me well into my adulthood to real because mm. that's the first question not just about movies you know that i ask about all sorts of things what is yes. right what is the right thing right and Lots of people don't start with that question. It's not actually a top priority for everyone, which really is, I, as I became an adult, like it really shocked me like, oh, not everyone is thinking about this all the time, right. you know? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, okay. I just wanted to put that out there because no. it definitely was one that had me thinking a bit. Um, but are you ready to jump back into the film? I am. And let's talk about the morality of these people. No, I'm ready. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, where we left off, Tommy had just convinced a very reluctant Henry to go on a double date with him because he, there was a, a girl that wouldn't, didn't want to go out with the Italians without an, some backup. And so that's where we're going to end up. And I think this is another key transitional moment in Henry's life. And that is the first meeting with Karen. Yeah. What a great casting decision. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I probably had seen Lorraine Bracco maybe in smaller parts that I, but I can't really recall. And then boom, this is such a fire, I don't know, fire-filled performance, I guess I would yeah. say. And from the beginning, you, and I love that the movie, and this is of course to Scorsese's uh, credit, switching the voiceover from Ray Liotta over to Lorraine Bracco. It, just like we, I was saying in the first part, how focusing on Ray's uh, uh, voiceover performance and showing that Henry isn't engaging in the more nefarious and evil acts of Tommy and uh, Jimmy, it shows you, it keeps you still somewhat cheering for him or connected for him or liking him, right? And then when Lorraine comes in, immediately we are we are hooked into this woman. She has this in such an interesting voice, uh, husky, yet still feminine and strong and delivering this new approach to Henry. Now we're seeing Henry through a romantic point of view and not like your standard romance with the fucking, you know, um, fuzzy, fuzzy picture and the, the angel singing. It's much more practical romance, but legitimate romance and a true care, a true caring for him that comes through in numerous moments. So such a brilliant decision to move the voiceover now over to Lorraine Bracco and have her take us through this section of the story. Uh, and I just want to say like that choice. And he does it also later on in casino. Mm -hmm. That's like unheard of in film Yeah, of like, you're just spend, you know, 40 minutes or whatever. Maybe you've done 30 minutes of the movie. You spend 30 <laughs> minutes of a movie listening to a voiceover. Well, one person gives the voiceover in general in a movie. And then suddenly yeah. in the midst of this scene, we hear his voiceover and then we switch over to Lorraine Bracco. Yeah. It's shocking. I couldn't stand him. I thought he was really obnoxious. He kept fidgeting around. And I just want to say too, how, how she ended up with this part. I had no idea that Lorraine Bracco had been dating Harvey Keitel for a really long time. Oh, wow. Okay. Did not know. And huh. then Martin Scorsese brings her in to audition for after hours oh damn and then he does something that directors rarely do which is he called her up personally and said i'm not going to hire you for this part mm -hmm. but i know you're extremely talented and i know we're going to work together someday oh that's nice can you imagine getting that 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 call from scorsese i think that'd be great i would love to get a call like that from scorsese and, and the thing is is and i'm curious what you think mm. it's not just that henry is reluctantly participating in the date he's being actively rude in the oh yeah date. he's actively well, disinterested in the date because he's you know he's getting he's getting nothing out of it he's focused on his business and his business like the things he's got going on and i've been there when you've been in a situation where like yeah i know I'm, I'm supposed to pay attention but i've got a million things going on and whatever you and i'm just trying to get through this evening or get through this function or get through this uh, hangout so that I can get back to doing the things that I, I had to, because I committed to do it, but I'm not hundred percent invested. Yeah. 
But it's not, and it's funny because it's not the rudeness to Karen that I suddenly became mm. aware of this last time we saw. It. It's the rudeness to Tommy because this is a guy who could be a made man at some point. Like if Tommy is, you know what I mean? Like you really give a shit about Tommy's feelings? Oh, okay. I don't. No, no, I don't. No, I. Tommy's a terrible person. <laughs> That's what I'm I, saying. I go, why is Henry Hill at this moment being oh. so openly? You know, you know, because Tommy wants to get laid. And so right. and Henry Hill is directly standing in the way of Tommy's goals by his bad behavior on this double date. That well, Tommy yeah, but these are mafia him. guys. They're not going to act nice or whatever, cordial and correctly. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I don't know if I necessarily see it quite that way, but I see your point of view, obviously, because it well, could affect Tommy getting laid. <laughs> Well, and again, it's not about because it's funny that this morality question came up at the beginning. Yeah. It's not about that. It's not about this is good behavior or bad behavior. Mm-hmm. It's about Tommy is a dangerous person who is powerful, and Henry is not necessarily making a smart choice here, as I guess. Uh, I yeah, see. fair point. Uh, uh, I love after he finally gets them out the way they shoot their exit, which is he's walking with her towards camera and he's essentially pulling her along. Yeah, And then we hear, but do not see, as they're heading towards the car, by the way, and then we yes. hear, but do not see the sound of the car door slamming closed. Before it was even time to go home, he was pushing me into the car and then pulling me out. And now they are walking away from us as if they have now gotten out of the car as they're walking yeah. back to the house. Yeah. It is a, that is a beautiful, that's like conceptual editing. You know what I yeah. mean? Mm-hmm. That, that they have an idea and sound wise, it just, and this is what Scorsese does maybe better than anybody else is he just propels you forward, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Throughout the movie, there's a yeah. number of cuts that propel you into the next scene. Sometimes they're just edits and sometimes they're loud noises, which I noticed, yeah. you know, rewatching the, the film for our conversations. I just was blown away by some of the editing choices and how, how u- unique they are in, in their approach to telling the story. It's so aggressive. It's mm-hmm. just it's just aggressively pushing you through this film, you know, yeah. um, which is what makes the film, I think, so thrilling. You know, is right. it's that pace. It's that it's the energy of the shot selections, the energy of the cuts. Yeah. Um, and then we hear that they planned a second double date and the second double date. Henry stands them up completely. And it's just Tommy and his date and Karen just sobbing at the table next to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can. But this is also a way for you, and this is really smart too, because you don't have exposition to explain Karen, right? You just have yeah. all of a sudden Lorraine Bracco is here. You've established Henry Hill so strongly from Ray Liotta's performance and the writing and the things you've put him through. We've seen him from a teenager to where he is now, and so okay, he's established. Okay, who's the woman that's going to be with him? Oh, it's her let's we don't get to go back to her teenage years and see how they felt you know it's boom her voice comes in she's immediately explaining the situation and then we feel sympathy for her because she got stood up and so she's like sitting there crying so she's showing actual emotion really smart here and say we were a trio we were a trio you know when he stood me up and uh, and and the next shot is her you know showing up in the car and she's not even driving the car as it slams into the trash cans. I don't know. I think Tommy is driving or someone's driving it. And she steps out. So we go from seeing Henry mistreat this woman. So we immediately are like, what the fuck? And her crying. And then, boom, her retaking the power in that relationship by confronting him, which I think is fantastic. You got some nerve standing 
me up. Nobody does that to me. Who the hell do you think you are? Frankie Valley or some oh. kind of big shot? <laughs> I think her exit out of the car and advancing mm. on him is so powerful and she mm. looks so gorgeous. And yeah. you just, and you go like, who the fuck is this person? Like it, yeah. it's so, and you see why it completely changes Henry Hill's view of her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But by the way, uh, Scorsese's description of Karen is she's the movie star. Oh. Which I find really interesting. And I think that led, they, I, it sounds like maybe Lorraine Bracco battled with Scorsese maybe more than anyone else on the set because she had strong ideas about, I will not wear the, I would not wear jeans. I would not wear this. <laughs> like, because, and I think a lot of it came from that movie star description of yeah. that. This is a person who 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 puts forth an image, you know. Yeah. Slow down, slow down. All right, I forgot. I thought it was next week. It was Friday. It was this Friday, and you agreed, so you're a liar. We're in front of the cab stand. Hmm. Everyone is laughing at yeah. Henry that he's taking this so publicly, and then we go back to his voiceover. I remember she's screaming on the street, and I mean loud, but she looked good. I think this is critical. This 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 is the first moment that's critical to their relationship. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I love it because, like, I don't know. I've always preferred a strong woman. I've always liked a woman who's going to fucking demand her space and uh, has no problem telling you her opinion. And yeah, I know I come from a family where we have, you know, very strong opinions on a number of things. And so passionate responses back and forth about things um, are just standard. We're standard in our family. So I always kind of gravitated to relationship wise, the women who are quite outspoken and what have you, um, in certain ways. And so I see the scene as it's a, to me, it's, it's a sexy scene. She's wearing the red dress. She's coming out of this white car. So kind of that angelic symbolism of white, you know, the white thing. And then she's confronting Henry and Henry has his shirt open. Like, I think there's a, like, there's these little things you can pick up, right? So Henry's open for the attack. She's coming in. She wants to draw blood. And she's wearing the red dress and she gets it from him in there and he's grabbing her, yanking her back. And she's like, you can hear, if you listen on your headphones, you can hear Lorraine Bracco say, don't touch me. She's commanding her space, right? And then you hear the voiceover and you hear what he says. But she says like, you know, it's going to cost you. It's going to, she doesn't immediately give in, but she likes that this is a bit of a chase here between both of them. So there's an equality here because I imagine Karen was not an easy person to date if you weren't someone she wanted to date do you know what i'm saying so oh, yeah i like that they both are like these tiger these lions that kind of lioness a lion and a lioness kind of meeting each other in the middle here and i, I really appreciated the scene for that and the guys i mean that's the thing right that's the, the guys are in, oh you know that kind of stuff i think it's a great uh, sequence to have in there as well i mean it, it opens with him being avoidant and her being furious yeah. and then it becomes She's still mad, but it's mad flirting and he's mm-hmm. mad and he's flirting. And the smile, when she starts to smile at the yeah. end of the scene and you know they're going to have another date, it's just, you're thrilled. You're excited yeah. about this going on. 100%. Yep. Show up at mom's house. She immediately has to hide that uh, cross that's around his neck. Yes. How do you do? Hi, nice to meet you. My daughter says that uh, you're half Jewish. Um, it's just the good half. <laughs> That's a good cover with mom. Oh, yeah. That's, that's well done. Yeah. John, let's go to the Copacabana. Let's go. 
It's easily the most famous shot in the movie. One of the most famous shots in history. This goes down. We've talked about it many. We brought this up when we've looked at other long tracking shots. Yeah. And gone. It's like the Copacabana shot. It's like the mm-hmm. touch of evil shot, the Copacabana shot. You can add some other ones from like from like the player or other things mm. like that. But these are the right. big ones, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we are going to start on the outside. By the way, the uh, cinematographer is Michael Ballhaus. Oh, what a great, great cinematography in the movie. Yeah. Um, one of the things I loved listening to him talk was, and again, because this is what I treat, teach in film school, mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese is super prepared. Yeah. So he has gone through, he's created his full shot list. He has, he hasn't just created his full shot list that he has on the day. He's created it well in advance. So his cinematographer can read through his complete shot list ahead of time and think about it, make sure that it all makes sense. Then they book the location. Then he and the cinematographer, and I'm sure the AD is there as well, Mm. they walk through the location, make adjustments, because frequently when you come up with your shot list, you might not have the location yet. You might not, but when you're in it, then you're talking about where you're putting the lights, you're going through, making sure everything works. And then that's why you have the AD there, because the AD is the guy who's going to run the set, and he is taking his notes, and now everybody is on the same page, and that is how you do efficient filmmaking, Mm. you know? Like yeah. this, like wow. I'm the artist and I show up on the set and, and there are filmmakers that have done that and made great films, yeah. but this is not my students, you know, like you get to do that after you prove that you can make the shot list and actually make a good film. Then you can make yeah. it up as you go along. That's fine. Yeah. So needless to say, this isn't made up as going along. It's really, really well planned out. We start off on the street and he's giving some money to a guy to watch his car. And already Karen is going, what are you doing? You're leaving your car? Watch hey. the car for me. It's easier than leaving it out of the garage and waiting. Normal people park in a garage. They don't just park across the street and hand some guy some money. Right. You know, we walk not where the crowd is waiting in line to get in. We go downstairs. We go into the kitchen. And what is Henry Hill doing with almost every important person he sees along the way as we go on this journey? Yeah. He's having some kind of familiar greeting with each of them. And frequently giving them money. Oh, yes, that as well, yes. He's just like Jimmy money. did. Just like Jimmy did. Yeah, just like Jimmy did. And, of course, man, I let I let this guy in. He spreads around that much money sure. for the whole staff. Um, there's tremendous chaos, and all of that chaos is choreographed. And this is so hard to do. I can't begin to tell you how difficult the timing. you got people coming around blind corners, and you need that waiter or that cook or that person to walk in at that exact moment for everything to fit together. Yeah. They, by the way, they, they walk through one of the hallways, the same hallway twice. (laughs) And so they walk through and as they walk, as the camera moves off of that hallway, they pull out a wall and redress the set. So when they walk back the second time, it looks completely different. Love it. One of the other things that has to happen is, so when you're doing a shot like this, you have to pull focus and pulling focus because you want your characters obviously to be in focus. And what you would do at the beginning of your shoot is the first AC, which is his job is to be on the little focus wheel, is going to measure the distance from the lens to the subject. Right. Well, when you're doing a shot like that, the subject is constant, the distance is constantly changing. And so throughout this whole thing, when you're rehearsing it, yeah. you are measuring and remeasuring the distance. And the, I don't know if you've, you've seen this, you probably have, but the, that on that focus wheel, it's like a white wheel. Yeah. And then you make little ink marks on the focus wheel for each point. So that they're they're going as they're moving through and they're constantly adjusting a little closer, a little farther, a little closer. It's a super, super hard job. Yeah. 
But that's not the only thing they had to do because they're moving from the daytime space into a darker space and then into a different lit space when they go into the actual club. So they also have to ride the exposure. Right. As it gets done, you have to do it and you have to ride exposure really care- carefully because if you ride it too much, then everything dims all at once. It doesn't look right. Mm. You have to do it perfectly. So this is technically, there's just so much stuff going on right. as they're moving through the space. Yeah. I love when we suddenly come up into the actual Copa um, and that table appears. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most magical moment to me hmm. okay. is that because, and, well, let, let me ask you this. Mm. Has Karen ever been to the Copa? No, hell no. I don't think so either. Yeah, no. And if she's she's driven by there, she's walked by there, um, at the most, maybe if she's ever been there, it's like a happy hour if they even did that back then. So, but no, I don't think she's ever like gone to the Copa, you know? And if she did go or went to another club, where did she sit? Uh, In the back, way in the back, of course. Way in the back, way in the back. And now you come in and not only are you going to sit in the front, but they're going to bring out a new table for you mm. to put it in front of people that are already there. Yeah. Yeah. So by the way, Martin Scorsese took his date to the Copa on prom night to, <laughs> to see Bobby Darren. Hey, Bobby D. I love Bobby Darren. And they get, and he got, sounds like pretty good seats. And at the last minute, a table flew in and was put right in front of him and his date. And a couple of very big guys came in and sat right in front of them so they couldn't see the stage. Oh, my God. That sucks. By the way, the person who owned the Copa at this time mm-hmm. was Joe Gallo. Oh, yeah. A, uh, a, a, a Definitely a wise guy. You know, yeah. a pretty oh dangerous guy. Yeah. That's who owned the Copa. And they finally, they sit down. And a bottle of wine gets sent over. And she says... I mean, spending around $20 each in like the late 60s, early 70s when this is, that is so much damn money, you know? And then I love this moment. I think this is a great transition. She says, looks at him after all this and says, What do you do? I think there's so much in that line. Yeah. Because this is unlike any person she's ever met. And he says, and again, I like this whole thing. He says, I'm in construction. And she touches his hands and says, you don't feel like you're in construction. <laughs> Does she suspect in this moment? It's a good question. No, I don't think yet. Not yet. I, I think she's think. still putting it all together. Uh, and then we hear. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Copacabana is proud to present the king of the one-liners, Henny Youngman. I love Henny. <laughs> Do you? Oh, yeah. I, I, I love Henny. Oh, I grew up with him too. Yeah, I, I love the 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 Henny Youngman one line. I do, yes, all of the old school uh, Jewish comics. I was such a fan of growing up. Whenever they'd pop on the variety shows in the seventies, man, I loved them. His his is weird, and I, and I do I like the one liners. Mm. It, it's weird to me that he starts with "Take my wife, please." It doesn't deliver it that well because. It's a joke, but it's like it's like became his catchphrase. I don't yeah, know. Catchphrases are not my favorite thing. I think yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's all, and it's also funny that he bridges this gap. Like he was mm-hmm. playing the Copa in the late '60s, and so it makes perfect sense for him to still be playing it in you know 1990. Yeah. That yeah. he's still around and does it. So they did eight takes on this. It surprises me. I mean, and, and resetting on this is huge. So it's probably it was probably a 40 minute reset to to yeah. start over, and. This is a four-minute 
uh, shot, no coverage. Henny Youngman blew his line multiple takes. <laughs> his catchphrase. Yep. So, John, here's my question for you. Okay. Obviously, this is a choice. Mm. Why did Martin Scorsese choose to shoot this scene in this way, in this well, incredible tracking shot? It's for the audience, right? I mean, l- l- people forget, like, The Godfather was so serious an approach oh. to mafia films, right? To mobster films. Before that, as we've talked about when we did The Godfather, the mobster films were seen more as B-type movies, right? Public Enemies and uh, The Roaring Twenties and all those things. They're they're still pretty brutal films, but they're kind of, you know, uh, B-movie in their approach. And then The Godfather comes out and it kind of elevates the the idea of being in a mob movie, right? But Scorsese's trying to show you what he saw and what he experienced and taking you into the journey to me it's this is the descent into the actual life of the mobster right when we're watching the stuff up until this point it's all these scenes and we're seeing how henry becomes what he becomes but this is now henry in his prime in his superpower and so when we're going through all this stuff we as the audience are now experiencing life as Henry, it's like we are the third person in this trio who is going into the club to sit with them at the table. So it's a very smart way that Scorsese has to suck people into liking this guy and then turning around later on in the movie and going like, look, you liked this guy. Look what you were caught up in. This is the actual truth of what this life is like. So I thought it was a really smart way to kind of get you to, to be excited about this kind of life. Uh, without realizing the complications of what this life is going to bring later on. Yeah, I, I totally agree with all that. I think this mm-hmm. movie, this movie, particularly the first 30, 45 minutes of the movie, is a seduction. Yes. And and yeah. I think, it, and the, in particular, in this scene, it's about seducing Karen. Yes. Because right. we see, we're seeing this version of the Henry Hill life, not just through this amazing Steadicam shot, but through her eyes. What yeah. is it like? A- yeah. And we're jealous. I want to be in front row of the Copacabana. <laughs> I mean, Henny Youngman might not be my favorite act to see, but like, wow, this is amazing. How cool is this? Yeah. yeah. A- and it's funny too. I-, I assume at some point you've been, there was a, there was a bachelor party I went to where there was a guy who was very hooked up in Vegas mm. and we bypassed all the lines and there was bottle service and there was all the stuff. Yeah. And it, it's seductive. It's and a different experience. Yeah. Yeah. And this the guy front of the line that, pass of the park is what it is. Yeah. And this guy was a complete jerk, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so like, it was interesting, like we were having this thing and I was like, oh, I don't really like this. I mean, I like parts of it. <laughs> um, and then we cut to out at the airport as we continue to hear classic Henny Youngman lines. My favorite, by the way, is I said, where do you want to go for your anniversary? She said, I want to go somewhere I've never been before. I said, try the kitchen. <laughs> That's some classic, classic Henny Youngman. Hey, it's 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 Rodney built his whole career off those, yeah, off those uh, jokes, yeah, yeah. Well, except the difference is the difference with the Rodney jokes, and a Rodney's just better yeah. than Henny Youngman in my opinion. But the difference is is that in Rodney he's the joke. Yeah, right, hundred percent. In Henny Youngman, the wife is the joke. Yeah, good point. Um, anyway, but this is not, this is not the Henny Youngman podcast. Um, and what we hear as we're out at the airport listening to Look in My Eyes by the Chantels is... Air France made me. We walked out with $420,000 without using a gun, and we did the right thing. 
we gave Paulie his tribute. By the way, and I'm not entirely sure how this happened, but someone said, hey, I don't want to use fake money, but I don't think it was Scorsese. I think it was one of the actors. Mm. And so the prop guy had to go out and he basically withdrew everything from his personal bank accounts wow. to get thousands of dollars in thousand dollar bills for wow. this scene. And so he was not leaving the set that day. <laughs> <laughs> he was very protective of his props. I imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I like this. I like this sequence because it also like cements Henry even more into the the life, even more into mm-hmm. the family. And again, this is a safe crime, right? Henry's not killing ten people to steal jewels. You know, he is doing, and he t- he comments on it. He says, "You know, without even uh, using a gun, I was able to take this many out, you know, this much money out." And so. Paulie, uh, Paul coming over, slapping him in the face and giving him the kiss and Jimmy kind of giving him his uh, stamp of approval as well. It's, this is Henry now like pleasing his um, uh, elders, his mentors in the life with this job, you know. And I think, too, I think it reinforces what we've been saying about how the system works. And because they, quote, did the right thing and gave Paulie his tribute, it makes you feel like, oh, yeah, this is part of it. I mean, it's. It makes you it feel less criminal, I guess, you know, because it's like, yes, it's all part of this system where we all are doing the, the quote unquote right thing. You know, John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephiles new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We're at a beach club where Henry clearly feels out of place, doesn't know how to pay for his check, and then this guy walks up. Hi. How you doing? Okay, Bruce, how are you? Okay. It's obvious that he there's something going on here that Henry doesn't quite understand. Yeah. Do you know him? Yeah. He lives across the street. That's something that's going to come back. Mm-hmm. We are back at another club. I don't know if it's supposed to be the Copa again. Uh, listening to who is supposed to be Bobby Vinton. You want to know who is playing Bobby Vinton in this scene? 
I think I remember, but I don't know right now. Who was it? It's Bobby Vinton's son. Hey. Playing his dad. Nice. He was an exciting guy. He was really nice. He introduced me to everybody. Everybody wanted to be nice to him. And he knew how to handle it. I think he knew how to handle it is key to yeah. this thing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's all seeming very romantic. Yeah. And because Scorsese loves juxtaposition, he goes straight from this very romantic moment to Chuck Lowe as Maury in his wig commercials. <laughs> Which I'm going to say is just about as unromantic as you could get. <laughs> and he is angry at Jimmy because I guess he's taken out a loan or something. Yeah, he's and taking out a loan and Jimmy's charging him a higher uh, percentage on the VIG. So uh, he is not mad about it. He, he's mad about it because he thinks Jimmy is doing this to him personally and other people aren't paying as much as he's paying. You're going to fight with Jimmy Conway? He wants his money. Give him his money and let us just get the fuck out of here. Hey. And then Maury cannot control himself. Fuck him. Fuck him in the ear. What are you talking about? Fuck him in the other ear. And then he says, he's lucky I don't drop a dime on him. That's what brings Jimmy over. Like, yeah, you cuss him out, say whatever. Jimmy doesn't give a shit. He's watching the show or watching the commercials or whatever. But like the second he says, I could have dropped a dime on him if I wanted to. He's lucky I kept quiet. That's it. That's the crossing of the line. And that's when De Niro comes over and chokes in or tries to choke him out with the cord the phone cord for god's sakes and maury is so great he's so he has such wherewithal that he picks up the phone when it rings again uh the new line which i think is great well and, and it's like you know with the with the pizza with the mailman going in the pizza oven or something we're watching violence these are dangerous people and it's mm-hmm. really funny and the wig goes off and henry's laughing at the wig going off and it's funny you know um Tell me, though do you have a maury have you known a maury in your life uh do i know yes yeah 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 uh, me too. uh but I, I was kind of separating out because i know a lot of older jewish guys from this generation i mean this oh no was, i don't mean that. Know, <laughs> yeah because but but no i know a lot of guys like uh epi <laughs> epi was my great aunt's one of their best friends irene and epi and he was a salesman you know i yeah. in and so like in the Jewish of that generation kind of salesman type guy. I knew a lot of those guys, but then, but then it's, that's why I had to separate out. Then there's also the guy who cannot shut his fucking mouth. Yes. And I'd known that guy too, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, it, and, and it's, and maybe this is a better example of what I was trying to say with Henry acting bored at the date. It's like, what the fuck are you thinking? Jimmy mm-hmm. Conway is a dangerous person. And yeah. you are saying this like, cause at first you don't know that Jimmy is in the room, you know, yeah. that he's right there. You're saying you're going to fuck him in the ear and then you're going to drop a dime. What the fuck are you thinking? I, you I liken these guys to like those little dogs that go barking up to the big dogs, uh, which you look at and you go, are, how are you not aware of how small you are in this situation? Like yeah. what is, what is wrong with you? How do you not have spatial awareness? Right. I'm always fascinated when I watch little dogs try to bark at big dogs. And when big dogs make a step towards them, they freak out and start barking even loudly, louder rather. And so to me, that's what I'm watching with Maury. And I know people like, I've met people like this who just bark all day. And then when they're confronted, it's, oh no, I didn't mean it. You know, it's all the fucking backtracking, you know, and it's because they don't have any power and they, and they don't sense that they have any power. So they have to do certain things like this to kind of feel like a man in that moment. And then they get absolutely smoked because they cross that line. And so, I love him. this performance, by the way. He's one of my favorite characters in this movie because it's such an unusual character in the midst of all this madness. 
Um, but the way he's played is so sweetly so that when he gets killed later on in the movie, I'm actually kind of sad when he gets killed, even though he's annoying as fuck. And I can understand why, um, it, you know, it, it, it's just sad because he's such a sad soul, you know? Um, and I think Jimmy De Niro is genuinely scary when he comes out. Yeah. This is a scary guy. And then in the midst of, you know, roughing up Maury, the phone rings. And somehow, I don't know how Karen knew to call Henry Hill here, <laughs> but she did. And he answers and she's obviously upset. And, yeah. and he runs out as we hear Jimmy threaten Maury. <laughs> and, 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 and we hear the commercial playing again, which by the way, apparently the real Jimmy couldn't stand when this commercial came on TV. Because oh. every time the commercial came on TV, he's just like, this guy has fucking money to make another commercial and doesn't have the money to pay me my money. Yeah. Like, it drove him crazy. Yeah. Uh, so, Henry drives up fast to Karen, who is at a phone booth and has obviously been crying. And the story she tells is about that guy, Bruce, that we met at the club or whatever. He started to touch me. He started to grab me. I told him to stop. He didn't stop. I hit him back. And then he got really angry. <laughs> he pushed me out of the car. And Henry is not pleased. And I think, again, I think in its own way, just as going into the Copacabana is thrilling and exciting and even romantic, yeah. what Henry does in this next scene is thrilling and exciting and even romantic, despite being really violent, in my opinion. I would say sexy. Yes. She... I think much more than romance, it's sexy to what he does yeah. in the next scene. Yeah. Cause he sees these guys, they're out front working on a car. By the way, in reality, these guys were inside and he went into their house to do this. <laughs> um better. Yeah. You see him put his revolver in his waistband and the camera backs up as he's coming forward. And I think Ray Liotta's performance, the intensity on his face, yeah, is so great. This is what did you just say a few minutes ago? Like that's this is the most beautiful moment in the movie or whatever. This is my m most beautiful moment in the movie. Uh, mm. you, you, there's a reason I love revenge films, right? And there's a reason I love, I have an overdeveloped sense of justice. And in this moment, I, I I've never seen the movie and not fucking clapped or cheered or punched my chair when he kicks, when he, well, punches the shit out of this guy with a with a revolver in his hand or a, a, yeah. a gun in his hand because yeah because this guy tried to rape his girlfriend and um the the and then has the audacity to be like what do you want fucko and he just absolutely smashes him and so i love that as a fantasy thing not as an actual thing i'm not advocating violence i'm saying as a fantasy satisfaction thing in a movie some preppy rich white kid getting his fucking nose punched in because he tried to take advantage of someone uh, is beautiful to watch. And there's two other guys. It's so great, Scorsese. The two other guys, hey, you know, that kind of thing. And and then he points the gun, don't shoot. And his balls liquefy. It's fucking fantastic. So, eh, be mad at me all you want. I love this fucking scene. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not advocating violence. I'm just saying it's a nice fantasy to watch happen in a movie. I I, as you know, am not a revenge guy. I feel exactly the same way you do about this. <laughs> I think, well, and the thing too, it's like what you said before about like the little dog barking at the big dog. It's mm -hmm. like, it's like, oh, you thought you were tough when you had this woman with you and you could abuse her. 
guess yeah. what? You're not so fucking tough. Like I actually, I, I, I don't like violence at all, yeah. but I'm not, I mean, I wouldn't hit him quite so many times, but this, you know, there's certain times you're like, no, this guy fucking deserves this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. By the way, the, the, the gag is very simple is that the guy who's getting hit, he has a blood pack on his arm. Mm. So when he puts his hand up to cover his face, he's squeezing out blood. Oh, wow. And that's how the, it's super, super simple gag. And it's just, I think there are certain points. It's the, it's, this is a wake up to reality moment mm-hmm. for this mm-hmm. guy. Is like, oh, you thought the world was one way, and therefore you could behave in it in this horrible manner without consequences. And guess what? The world is not that way. Right. You know? He's one of these rich guys who looked at Henry being an Italian guy dating Karen, and he saw himself as like, no, I should be dating her. How could she say no to me? If she can date this scummy dude, I'm yeah. certainly better than this guy. And when she rejects him, it's even more of a rejection to him and an insult to him because he thinks he's better than him. So that's when Henry does what he does. That's why he thinks he's like King shit saying something to Henry and immediately gets brought to reality in such yeah. a brutal way that I think is, you know, well-deserved honestly. And she's watching all this like through the door and yeah. he comes up to her quickly and without hesitation reaches out and says, hide this and puts the gun in her hand. Yeah. In general, inserts are not the most artistic of shots, unless you're in a Wes Anderson movie. The shot, just the perfect amount of blood that's on that gun and yeah. on her hand, and the way that gun goes into her hand, it is a fantastic shot. Agreed. Are you all right? Are you all right? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. And he just turns and walks away, and she watches him. Yeah. And then we hear... I know there are women like my best friends who would have gotten out of there the minute their boyfriend gave them a gun to hide. But I didn't. I gotta admit the truth. It turned me on. I think that is one of the most remarkable lines in all of movie history. I agree. And Lorraine's delivery, the pause is what sells it. The pause before she says, I gotta admit, it turned me on. That pause in between those two sections of the line are fantastic because it lets you know that she meant it and that she was a little bit ashamed to admit it, but she was going to tell you the truth. I love that. Well, and I think it sums up a lot of what we've been talking about Scorsese. What, you know, you're watching Wolf of Wall Street, you're watching Goodfellas and part of us, you got to admit this turns you on, Mm. you know? Yeah. Like this is freedom. This is, this is all the bad instincts that you wouldn't act on, of course, but yeah, but, but you know, like because there 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 are guys that you want to or I want to yeah. take that gun to and beat their fucking faces in. We've had those thoughts, you know. You know, I'm not a violent guy, but I've had those thoughts. And there are you know things that like just the like, you know, whether it's after hours or or in um in casino or in this or in king of comedy where it's like, well, what if I do act on this instinct? Right. What if I do cross this line? What happens? But I think it's also important to point out. We are cheering on a mobster who has probably beat up people, killed people who were someone else's wife or boyfriend or yep. what, or husband rather. And, oh, sorry, who was someone else's boyfriend or husband and left the wives or girlfriends without this person. So I think it's an interesting moment too to totally like drill down on like we're cheering this moment because we like Henry. 
and we like Karen. That's why we're cheering on this moment because Leota is delivering a wonderful performance. is making us connect to this guy, even though this guy's a mafia guy. And Lorraine Bracco is doing a, a, another wonderful performance here as Karen. So we like these two as a couple. So anything from the outside coming to fuck with them, we kind of put away the fact that we know this guy's a mobster and has done some you know crimes and whatever that that are illegal. And then, but but we're so caught up in it, we kind of push it aside to enjoy this little moment of vengeance. So it's a fascinating thing to really kind of parse out and break down and look at, but it's still a satisfying scene, you know? Well, because the guy deserved it. That's how we feel. Exactly. Well, and think about what everything we've seen. We saw a horrible, brutal murder at the beginning of the movie, but we really don't know anything about it. And we've kind of forgotten it. Then we've heard all of this, stuff about tribute we've heard that mm. they're like the police for wise guys that they're really just protecting people that need protection and yeah, yeah we you know maury didn't want to pay jimmy his money but maury owes jimmy that money and right. so and then we have this guy and then we 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 have a big robbery but we didn't use a gun yeah. it wasn't dangerous and then we did the right thing we paid paulie his tribute and then this guy gets out of line and does something horrible to a character we care about and we go and get revenge on that guy yeah so up to this point in the film Everything seems to make sense. You know what I mean? (laughs) Because we didn't see the guy that, you know, that Henry Hill beat up a guy that didn't deserve it like this guy. Right. right, You know, we didn't see that scene. We saw this scene. That's what I'm saying. He's, he, Scorsese does an excellent job of turning this guy into somewhat of a hero in the movie as your protagonist. And that's why when we get to the latter parts of the movie, it's a really interesting deconstruction of that uh, heroic feeling we had about him, you know? Yeah. And then we go from, and I, I think sound is sound design is so important in this, is that we go from her hiding the gun, where we hear her put the gun in a thing and there's a sound. And then we immediately cut to stepping on the glass in the wedding, which has a sound. Mazel tov. And the reason I bring it up is to me, these are like dual signs of commitment. Mm, I hid yeah. the gun for you. That is a sign of commitment. And now we're married. Obviously, that's a sound of commitment. Right, yeah. By the way, Henry Hill did convert to Judaism mm. and was circumcised in oh, his 20s. What? Yeah. <sighs> Not easy. Let me tell you something. It was tough when I was a baby. I can't imagine doing it when I was 20, for God's sakes. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a real commitment to, to doing this. <clears throat> and we're in this big party. We see Tommy talking to his mom, which is Catherine Scorsese. We see mm. a bunch of kind of mobster guys in the background. A lot of these guys are actually mobster guys, <laughs> you know, that, that that Scorsese or some of the other people had met. Because when he found faces that look like good faces, he would cast them. Yeah. And then we hear a whole bunch of stuff about the families. And apparently everybody is m- named Peter or Paul or Marie. Um, and the other thing that's happening is there's this bag that Karen has that envelopes are getting slipped into. There's a number of things they do with the Karen character. And I, I, I want to hear what you think as well as the people who are listening to us, but Karen is very much an other in this world, right? She is very clearly an other in this world. The way she's brought into the Copa, she is like completely like just savoring and observing and being blown away by all this stuff that she's experiencing that Henry is exposing her to. All right. And then when we get to this wedding sequence, right? Same thing. She's kind of just kind of taking it in and looking at everything and like, what's wait, we, we can't leave the bag with all this money. And Henry's like, what? Don't worry about it. It's totally cool. So she stays outside. And then later we're going to get to that scene where she's with the other wives and they're talking about their kids and all this shit. 
she is always othering throughout the whole movie, which keeps her in a different way than the way Scorsese is presenting Henry. It keeps her as part of us and not part of them. And I think that's an interesting thing when you're watching the movie um, in how Henry is also in a way like us in that he, he doesn't seem to be morally terrible overall, like Jimmy and Tommy. Uh, and Karen is the same way. Like it almost seems like Karen gets suckered into the criminal stuff because of her love for Henry. So they keep these two people kind of outside yet inside this world. And I think it's a such a smart decision by Scorsese to do it that way. Well, and what are the things she's seen? She's seen the romantic world of the Copacabana. Mm. She's seen the sexy world of someone protecting her honor. Yeah. Now she sees the romantic world, not only of family and how important family is to this group of people, mm. but it's also all this money this is being given to them. Yeah. Because I don't know how many, th- have, by the way, have you ever been to an Italian wedding where they're doing no. this? Putting- no, I've never been to one. Like I was at one once. It was weird. You know, people <laughs> just walk by and put envelopes in. And of course, I'm very curious. I'm like going, What's in that envelope? Is that a is that a fifty dollar envelope? Is that a five hundred dollar envelope? You <laughs> now know? you give me an idea. I think I'm going to have an Italian wedding without being Italian. <laughs> I think well, the well, you just got to invite nothing but Italians. Exactly. So I guess I'm not coming. I'm sorry I couldn't make your wedding, John. <laughs> no, Jewish people are allowed Italian weddings for God's okay. sake. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't know. I, I well, Come you on. know what? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you this right yeah. now. Yeah. If you have a wedding, <laughs> and if there is a bag. I will put money in an envelope and put it in that bag. Oh, come on, go. I love it. <laughs> it's a guarantee. I'm not saying whether it's going to be the 50 or the 500. That's something that only your, your lovely wife will find out when she opens it up. But, 100%. 100%. Um, and again, it ends very romantically yeah. and they're together and they're dancing and they're smiling. And then we've got these hard cuts where we go from one mood to the opposite mood, which is yeah. we're back at Karen's house because they were living with the mom and dad. And mom is upset because where the hell is Henry? He didn't call? He's with his friends. What kind of a person doesn't call? Ma, he's a grown-up. He doesn't have to call every five minutes. If he was such a grown-up, why doesn't he get you to an apartment? Oi, don't start. Mom, you're the one who wanted us here. Listen, you're here a month and sometimes I know he doesn't come home at all. What kind of people are these? Can we take a moment and give some love to Suzanne Shepard, who, by the way, I was, as the kids say, today years old, when I uh, saw that she was the same actress as uh, in Uncle Buck. I didn't know that was the same woman with the mole on her face. Oh, yep. Same. Didn't know that. And she was also in The Sopranos as Carmela's mom. So I think that was a kind of a nod to... Goodfellas having her cast as the mom of the of the woman there and the main uh, woman there, um, but she is so excellent in the movie. Like this back and forth with her and Karen, because Henry's not home, and her like, telling him, you know, people don't do this, people don't do this, and you know, you see Karen initially as her own woman doing her own thing, and you know, finding the sexiness with him. But then in this sequence, she's turned into the child of this woman almost immediately. And you see them, you see, she almost gets transported back to being a teenager with her mother who's domineering and deciding who she can date and when she can date and when they can come home. Also, their back and forth is so funny. But the dad stuff is hilarious too. It's great. Because when she says, dad, he goes, don't bring your father into this. That man hasn't digested a full meal in six weeks. Like it is so (laughs) 
perfectly delivered. <laughs> and, and this again, this is what makes great movies. People don't you don't get Oscars for these kinds of performances, unfortunately, or get recognized. Or I guess the way you get recognized is people want to work with you all the time, yeah. cast you in their stuff. But like these are things that make movies, man. You know, the uh, Chuck Lowe as Maury, that makes the movie. Suzanne Shepard here as Karen's mom makes the movie, man. So I just want to give shout out to the actors who stand out in that way because they really come in. They have no backstory, no real background or anything, and they have to deliver these lived in moments in ways that are believable and work and even find the humor in those moments without showing you that it's a comedy scene. So just great stuff from her throughout the whole film. Well, and what's so great, and 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 I'm assuming you sort of have the same reaction, is because this is this is a classic overbearing mom sort yeah. of scene. Yeah. Is that we're on Team Karen, which kind of puts us and an anti-team mom, which kind of puts us on Team Henry, except for the fact mom is totally right. Mom's a hundred percent right. Yeah. I mean, Henry's, you know. He's he's out sleeping around with his girlfriends and doing totally. all and committing crimes. Gallivant. Of course he is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Karen is staying home alone. Like this is not actually cool. But because of the structure, we we're still not siding with him. We're not seeing it that way. Right. Right. And then it's the middle of the night, and they hear the car. And I love that they both rush to the door. Awesome. And Karen tries to talk first, and there goes Mom laying into Henry and says, Henry. Why didn't you call? Where have you been? We were worried to death. A married man does not stay out like this. And he just turns and just without a word walks away cackling in that great Ray Liotta laugh. What's wrong with you? Henry, shut up. Normal. She's right. What's wrong with you, Henry? And and Tommy here is perfect. Yeah. Right? These are these moments where, and this is the genius of Scorsese again. I have to keep belaboring this point, but these are terrible people. But Scorsese wants you to watch this movie, so he has to make them human. So in this moment, with Tommy going, what kind of person are you, Hendry? Like, totally, and call him Hendry, which I think is hilarious, (laughs) making fun of 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 henry and 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 hey look henry is like shut up tommy this is like let me laugh about it because it's between me and my mother-in-law and my wife you chiming i don't need you chiming in right but it's so funny that tommy says the things that he says which makes you like these guys more which makes you kind of care about this relationship more because it feels like a friend ball busting relationship aside from them killing people and robbing people and pulling grimes you can connect to this in some universal way um, at least I can, cause I love ball busting. So you, you know what, you know what it is too. It just occurred to me, this scene is actually parallel to beating up the guy that messed with Karen because oh. I'm sure you've been in a situation where someone is, you know, dressing you down for something. Oh, sure. And you have to stand there and <laughs> take your guns, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you just go, yes, I'm, I'm sorry. And I'm, it's not going to happen again. You know, whatever it was, was You know, that the thing and what you really want to do is just turn around and break the rules of society and walk the fuck away and laugh at them. That's it's just like, fuck you, because the guy who messed with Karen didn't know what reality was. He didn't know who the person he was messing with was. Right. And Karen's mom thinks she's dealing with an ordinary person who has married her daughter and is not treating her well. Yeah. And, and Henry's like, you don't know who the fuck you're dealing with. I don't have to listen to your bullshit. I'm just going to walk away and laugh. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's Karen fun. knows this, which is why Karen goes, ma. Uh, then we go to the scene that you mentioned, which is we're with all of the wives. Mm. And 
first of all, this was taught, this scene was taught, I've mentioned this guy, Bruce Block, who taught mm. this class on visual expression in film yeah. and, and had the seven elements, visual elements of film and would break them down. And one of the visual elements is color. And this is the scene he shot, taught for color saturation, oh, wow. which is the intensity of the color. There's no half tones here. There's nothing faded. Everything is bright red, bright green, super intense blue. And the camera is moving really fast and the cutting is fast and you're never hearing all of the dialogue. And this whole scene, because of the intense color and the way that it's filmed, is super chaotic. It's hard to get. You don't feel comfortable in it. It's just bouncing around in this really intense, not welcoming space, I would say. Yeah. I love it. I love this scene. It's as I said, as I said earlier, it's an othering scene. And it walks that line. Look, it could have been a real horrible, judgmental, bordering on slightly racist scene, right? And but it's Scorsese, who is Italian. Yeah. And he is telling you this sequence and having Karen, what Karen sees when she's in this. And he casts these women that look like uh, you know, women who are not that attractive and they have the weird hair and the overdone lipstick and makeup and what Karen says, what the the kind of clothes they're wearing, it shows them to be somewhat cheap people. So this is the other side of the mafia. Like we're, we're, we've gone through the, the, the looking glass here and we're starting to see the cracks in this mafia life. Yes. Um, and this is one of those scenes that begins to show us that there's this whole other side that isn't fucking glamorous going to the Copa. There's a whole other side of this that gangsters have to deal with or that people in this life have to deal with or, or connect to. And it's, uh, it's not that savory or interesting or cool, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. I think this is a, a critical turning point where the romance, there's no romance in this scene. No, you know, zero. Yeah. This is the, this is a, oh, you think this is all fun? Take a look at your future. That's what yes. this scene is. You know right. what I mean? These are the people you're going to have to hang out with. Yeah. Well, yeah. And this is you. This is going to be you. Right. Right. I, I mean, you think of what Karen, you know, like I think it's critical that Scorsese says, hey, you're the movie star. And so she doesn't look like these other ladies at this moment. Yeah. But when we see her later on when she's visiting Henry in prison and doesn't have any money and is stressed out about the kids and all that stuff, she's, yeah. you know, headed in this direction. 100%. The other thing that happens in the scene is that we meet Ileana Douglas, who plays Rosie. Yeah. And uh, Scorsese met her. I think she was working at a casting office. And she is part of a storied Hollywood family, you know, related to Melvin Douglas. I can't remember what the relationship was. Ooh. And Scorsese was interested in her. Uh -huh. He's married to Barbara Dufina. He's encouraging Ileana Douglas to act. And at some point, probably during the making of Goodfellas, he started a relationship with Ileana Douglas. Yeah. Um, and I've heard some interviews with her. This is her first movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like there were many times where she was like Henny Youngman. She's in a complicated shot and she decided to, to act it up and draw a little bit of attention. And Scorsese would come up and go, um, don't do that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and what you said, by the way, it's like the, the hearing some of the stories about the kids. And they talked about how rotten their kids were and about beating them with broom handles and leather belts, but that the kids still didn't pay any attention. When Henry picked me up, I was dizzy. Right. It's the same thing, right? Like the, the Bobby, the Copa scene, the wedding scene, and then this scene. These are the three that you're just like, she's like really getting an idea of what this world is like. And each time it knocks her off kilter, you know? 
And that leads her, you know, we're back at their place. She's dressed in a beautiful silk nightgown, still the movie star. But now she's suddenly worried and is asking about. God forbid, what would happen if you had to go to prison? And he says, and I would love to get your thoughts on this line. Okay. Nobody goes to jail unless they want to, unless they make themselves get caught. They don't have things organized. Hmm. What do you think of that line? That's the swagger of a guy who hasn't been caught. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's what that is. It's like, you know, because I mean, w- when he does go to jail, why does he go to jail? He goes to jail, at least in the movie, because he'd been in and out of jail many, 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 yeah. many times. Um, when we see him go into the jail for that extended sequence in the movie, it's because he beat up the brother of a, a of a woman who was a typist at the FBI. So in no way was he wanting to go to jail by beating this dude up. So yeah. this is the swagger of a young man still in the game, still early in the game who thinks that, you know, his shit don't stink and he's untouchable. It's, it's the height of hubris, you know? Yeah, that's what I think. And then yeah. I really think, you know, we've said like the, the, the scene with the wives is the first sort of cracks mm-hmm. in this. But the seduction really continues because he literally seduces her in this moment. And as he's as they're laying down together, she says, after a while, it got to be all normal. None of it seemed like crimes. It was more like Henry was enterprising and that he and the guys were making a few bucks hustling while the other guys were sitting on their asses waiting for handout. Well, it's what she rationalized, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that framing is key. Our husbands weren't brain surgeons. They were blue-collar guys. The only way they could make extra money, real extra money, was to go out and cut a few corners. <laughs> it's just cutting a few corners, John. Yeah. I mean, how many people have you known whose wives find a way to legitimize what they do or who they are as people um, in order so they can validate the fact that they chose this man to be married to? Or to be in a relationship with. I mean, Lord, I've had that experience multiple times uh, seeing, and you go, but this person did this to you. This person has done this. This person does this. And it's always a rationalization because they have to see their man as some kind of um, uh, victim in the world or some kind of good person in the world who's being hard done by everybody else, or they ignore their terrible characteristics in order to be with them. So it's just like, it gets to the point where it's like, well, then what the fuck is going on here, you know? And we go from, again, this is, it's 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 the contrast in the cut, is that we go from her going, oh, they're just cutting a few corners in this romantic moment where they're making love, yeah. to another robbery. Yeah. Where they're ro- and it gets violent this time with robbing a truck, Tommy's dragging the driver out, yeah. you know, yelling at him, they slap this guy around, and then... Again, super fast cutting. We're in that truck, and Tommy leans out that window and fires through the brown paper bag with his revolver. (laughs) And it's exciting and violent, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we see, like, the the only world that she's really living in is this world with these people. Yeah. And then the police come to the house with a warrant, and she welcomes them in. She offers them coffee. Yeah. Because this is a routine. And she says, you know, like the other women, they'd spit on the ground, spit on their own home, spit on the ground of their own homes and do all these, be so mad. And she said, I just never saw the logic in being that way to the police, right? Because again, she didn't grow up in this world, right? A lot of these guys marry uh, women who've grown up in this world, um, not participating or anything, but grown up around it. And so they've come to their own rationalizations 
for it, she's just a different person. So again, she's othering that world by being nice to the federal agents and offering them coffee and not causing any trouble and, you know, being cool and let them do their thing because there's nothing there in her mind that they're going to find, you know? Well, it's funny. I'm just, I, 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 I'm going to say based on my upbringing, the way she handles this is a very Jewish way to handle this. Yeah. Oh, really? Like, okay. Sure. The spitting on the floor is not going to do you any good. Yeah. Like as she said, you're spitting on your own floor and it's like the offering the cup of coffee. It's, it's a way to show how not guilty you are yeah. and how calm you are within the situation, you know, yeah. as opposed to yelling and screaming at the people, well, that's just going to make the police more angry, you know? Right. 100%. Yeah. And then while this is happening, she's watching the jazz singer with Al Jolson, who's singing Toot Toot Tootsie Goodbye <laughs> on the TV, which I have no idea why Scorsese is picking that particular thing. Yeah. Um, and then in mid note, we cut from that song, but it's about to end, but not when it ends, into mid note of a happy birthday at a happy birthday party. It is an exceptionally jarring cut. And I want to talk about something which I don't think we've ever talked about in the cinephiles, which is what a good cut is. Yeah. Um, is that you spend a lot of time when you're learning how to edit is to figure out how to make, and by a good cut, I don't mean that cuts that are not quote unquote good cuts are bad. What I mean is that a good cut is an invisible cut. Mm-hmm. Is that you've gone from one shot to another shot and you're not, and you didn't notice the cut. You're just in the movie in that space. Yeah. And so there are all these rules where you spend so much time going, okay, I can cut at the beginning of this movement on the A side, which means the first shot, and then cut into the beginning of the movement on the B side. And because the movement's in the same position, I don't notice the cut, mm-hmm. you know? Whereas if I start the cut on the A side and the movement's starting, and I and then on the B side, the movement's three quarters of the way done, well, you would notice that cut because something jumped, you right. know? Right. There's all sorts of things. And they, even when I'm editing the cinephiles, that is that you can't cut out in the middle of a song because you will notice the cut. Like audio really makes you aware of cuts. And so like one of the things, and I literally do this all the time editing this podcast, if I'm cutting into a a line, Hmm. there's always a tiny little fade so that you actually hear the space of the movie a quarter of a second before, while you're still hearing our voices, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as you fade into the movie, then you hear the line and then you'll hear the end of that fading out as you hear our voices come back in. I love that when you do that. I love that when the sequences happen in the, in the, in the show. Well, Hey, thank you. And if I didn't do it, it would be jarring. Yes. And because it would be jarring, it it becomes harder for you to hear the next line of dialogue because you got jarred a little bit and then you'll miss some dialogue. And so that, and there's all this technique in terms of making a good cut work, both in terms of sound and in terms of picture. Yeah. And Thelma Schoonmaker and Martin Scorsese are fucking goddamn geniuses and know how to violate that in all sorts of ways. And this cut from the middle of Tootsie, the end of the song, but not quite ended, into yeah. mid-Happy Birthday at different notes at different keys is so jarring. But it just throw. It's like it's like it says, "I don't need all those good cutting rules. I'm going to toss you into the next scene aggressively, <laughs> and you will go like, what's happened?' You know. And they do it constantly throughout this movie, which is yep. why I wanted to point it out here. Yeah. Um, and this is when we see that they're all spending all their time together, birthday parties. We see snapshots. We see all of the the families. And she says, "It got to be normal. It got to where I was even proud that I had the kind of husband who was willing to go out and risk his neck just to get us the little extras." <laughs> Again, rationalization. Yeah. Totally. Well, 
and it's fun to have all the little extras. She's never sure. got, she, you know, this is all nice. We see this long closet full of suits. They have a little bit of an argument because mom can watch the kids and he's like, and she wants to do stuff with him, but she's got something to do. And then it's a little bit later and he's heading out and she says, can I get some money? And he goes, how much do you need? And I love that she holds up her fingers in distance because it's like, and I think she's saying, I want a wad about this big. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. And then he gives her a big stack of bills in the kitchen. I think she sinks to her knees in front of him. And I love Ray Liotta's going, uh oh, all right. All right. Yeah, it's great. And the thing is, um, this is where you also see her descending into the world herself. Do you know what I'm saying? She's now accepted it. She's rationalized it twice to us over voiceover. And in this sequence, she now understands that she can play the rich wife being like, how much can you give me? You know, oh, I'll, you know, I'll give you a blowjob for, you know, as a thank you and whatever. And so like she's accepting. So she's no longer innocent. She's no longer like just being sucked in or tricked. She is part of it now in terms of enjoying the spoils of what he's doing. And so she's complicit in a way. That That's a great way to put it. And I, I'm going to say it in just the worst way. Okay. And she's paying for it. Like the blowjob is she's now exchanging sure. for money, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could argue. Yeah. You could totally look at it that way with how that scene is presented for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have another great needle drop. He's sure the boy I love by the crystals mm-hmm. on screen. We see June 11th, 1970 Queens, New York. And it's, you know, if you're going to see a specific day, then Scorsese is telling us something very important yeah. happens on this day. Yeah. And we're into this club, by the way, I believe that Henry Hill actually ran this bar. This was really his. Yes. Bar. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we see Frank Vincent, who plays Billy Bats. Now we, we saw him at the beginning of the movie, but now we're really seeing him. I had no idea what his history was. Did you know much about his history? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, because of being a fan of Scorsese for so many years, you know, and Frank Vincent is one of those, you know, and you and me, I'm an actor brother. So when I see someone who's really interesting and it's consistently part of an, of a director's cast of films, um, you got to find out why. And so, yeah, the Frank Vincent stuff is real interesting. Uh, go ahead, man. Go ahead. I know you did the, research on it so so i didn't know that he was a drummer he was a rock and roll drummer in the 60s there's some i can't remember what it was there's some track that he played on like an important not a huge hit but like a like a big track and then i didn't know that joe pesci's dad wanted him to be a singer i didn't know that and i didn't know that frank vincent his band was called frank vincent and the aristocats (laughs) um and that he hired joe pesci in 1969 and they became a comedy duo yeah I had I had no idea that they, <laughs> that the relationship go back. They did a comedy album. You can listen to it on YouTube. You could do a search for it, and that they worked together in another movie before Raging Bull, which um, Scorsese saw, and then he asked uh, Frank to come on Raging Bull. So they worked together on that. And then when it comes time for Goodfellas, he goes gives Frank Vincent the script and says, "What part do you want to play?" Mm. And Frank Vincent said, "I want to play Polly." And Scorsese said, which is interesting. Yeah. It would have been totally different. Yeah. And he says, no, I actually, I know who you have to play. So that's how he ends up as Billy Bats. Um, And he's celebrating. And it seems as if he's celebrating because I think he just got out of prison. Yes. He's toasting. Jimmy's there. And Tommy comes in with a date. Tommy, all dressed up. All grown up and doing the town. Look at this. Tommy. I forgot you were having a party. Oh, 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 come here. 
that you could feel the tension starting. Yeah. He comes over, he puts his arm around Tommy and I love, just watch how, how Frank Vincent manhandles Joe Pesci Mm -hmm. and Joe Pesci's reaction to the way that he's pushing him around just a little too hard. Watch the suit. Watch the suit. Watch the suit, you little frick. Hey, I know you're my life. All right, good. We're getting too big on me now. Don't go busting my balls, Billy, okay? How much did Billy Bats bust Tommy's balls? Well, clearly there was already a predisposed feeling of anger towards this guy. Because as soon as Tommy walks in and sees him, he's like, ah, shit, I forgot the things tonight for this guy. And he's got a new girl Tommy does. So he's already predisposed to not like this guy. Clearly there's a history here. Um obviously as they talk about the Shinebox stuff, I'm sure Billy was a fucking dick to him when he was a uh, Oh yeah. And I'm sure he busted his balls mercilessly. I'm sure Tommy was spider to his Billy Bats, like the, to his uh his uh, Tommy, you know. And so um that's where I think you get that anger, you know. And and so when he walks over and Joe hesitates, I mean sorry, uh, Tommy hesitates to go over but he walks over, and as soon as um, uh, Billy tries to grab him, man, you can tell that Tommy already has yeah. the hands up and the arms up. He doesn't want to be touched by this guy because he doesn't want to give. And he, he's radiating. I don't want. I'm doing what I need to do because you're a May guy, but I don't like you, right? And so that's what sends him back over. So you can tell that this is this is going to blow up very quickly. And I I love Frank Vincent. You know, he he was so good in in Raging Bull. I'm glad he got to have a really big part of the Sopranos because yeah. I always felt like he's the forgotten member of this foursome in Pesci, De Niro, and Scorsese. Frank Vincent was essential in a lot of these successful films of Scorsese with De Niro and Pesci. And so I always felt he got kind of the short end of the stick. And so when he got to have a really nice extended um, time on the Sopranos, as I think the last main rival of Tony's yeah. for like two seasons, two or three seasons, it was great to see him get, show people, hey, I can fucking act, you know, and it can be a bigger part of things when you give me a chance, you know. Well, and I think, you know, it's not like he's an act, an actor at the level of De Niro or Pesci. Or no, no, guys. no. But he fills that slot. He, yeah. if you need, you know, he's a utility player. Like you need him to do that thing. He's going to come in and do that thing. He's going to be great. Um, yeah. The, the, the epiphany I had is the one you just mentioned a moment ago, which is like, I went, oh, shit. Tommy was Spider. And oh, Frank totally. was Tommy being being hit, being that to spider, yep. which is so interesting on a whole bunch of levels. Cause this is what happens if spider lives another decade and can get his revenge on Tom and that Tommy continues to treat him that same way. Totally. You know, Tommy, um, this irony of Tommy, Tommy hates to be mistreated, but he mistreats everyone around him. Yep. That's the irony of Tommy always. And, and, and the moment, you know, that he says, Hey, Tommy, if I was going to break your balls, I'd tell you to go home and get your shine box. <laughs> I love the line as he's toasting him and Tommy goes, No more shines, Billy. What? I said, no more shines. Maybe you didn't hear about it. You've been away a long time. They didn't go up there and tell you. Uh, I don't shine shoes anymore. What I love, too, is that little dig of you've been away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, A, you've been in jail, which doesn't up your status. And my status has gone up. Yeah. And, of course, Billy's playing it off like, oh, it's just a joke. I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you. I'm sorry, too. It's okay. No problem. Okay. Salute. And they're toasting each other. So I think this is all going to be okay. They they poked each other a little bit, but they're mature people, and they're not going to go any further with this. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. Motherfucking mutt! You you fucking piece of shit! And Tommy motherfucking throws his glass, advances on him, 
And then he says, as he's getting mad and he's going to take his date home and stuff, is he says, keep him here. Keep him here. Keep him here. Yeah. So has Tommy decided already to kill him? Yes, 100%. Do both Jimmy and Henry know that he's going to no. kill him? Henry doesn't know, but Henry's afraid that he's going to kill him. Yeah. Jimmy knows. Yeah, I think that's right. Keep him here. There's no other explanation. I mean, what I think what Henry might be going is like, okay, at this moment he wants to kill him, but he's going to go home, he's going to calm down, he's going to realize Billy Bats is a made man, and then he's going to rethink that, and he's not going to do it. That's what I think Henry's thinking. Right. And by the way, this occurred to me this time around watching the movie. I think Tom McDill goes home and has sex with his with this woman and then comes back to the bar. I think Tommy, Tom is going to get his needs met just because this son of a bitch showed up and fucked his night up. He's still going to get some, and then he's going to come back and do his business. That's what I think in my opinion. And I, I love De Niro's, like, I'm not going to start a big disagreement with Billy Bats, but I'm not quite going to let him get away with saying it was all on Tommy. No, 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 no. You insulted him a little bit. You got a little out of order yourself. No, I didn't insult him. I didn't insult him. him a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. Is this the origin of Little Bit? Yeah, oh, 100%. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, Baldwin did it as an invitation of De Niro all the time on uh, SNL. Mm-hmm. You still put him a little bit, little, little bit on the Joe Pesci show, which was a great skit on SNL for years. And they have drinks and with some toasts, and it looks like things are going to be okay. And then it's later in the evening. The guests are all leaving. The song choice here is so fucking spectacular. And this is where, like, how did you come up with Atlantis by Donovan? The continent of Atlantis was an island. Which is as counterpuntal to the scene as you could possibly imagine. And it works so goddamn beautifully. This is the thing. Steve, Steve's pointing out needle drops. You know, needle drops are not just like Guardians of the Galaxy, which were already all hits. That's easy. It's when you go burrowing deep, which is why Tarantino and Scorsese are the two best at it. When you go burrowing deep into people's catalogs and you find the song and you look at the scene and you go, no one would ever think to pair this song with this scene, but I'm going to do it and it's going to work. And I remember and I remember distinctly, I've always remembered Donovan's voice, he's like speaking and what's that time? What I did, all this kind of shit. And you're like, what the fuck has this got to do with it? And then bam, you know, it, it hits you. Well, and, and I will say, like, for me, because I have never, maybe, I just thought maybe once in my life I actually written a song into the script. Mm. For me, it's always finding them. And the amount of time that I have spent trying to find one song, easily several days to find one song. And it'll be like, I'll have, you know, either from popular music or if I work with a music supervisor, the music supervisor will, I'll say, I want a country Western song that's sort of high tempo that has a, a fast intro and a slow fade out or something like that. Mm, yeah. To say kind of, this is the kind of thing I think I'm looking for. And then the music supervisors, their job is to go out and try to find that within your budget. So right. I'll get handed 300 songs. Right. And I will sit there and I will plug that song into the scene and go, nope, try another one. Nope, try another one. Ooh, the beginning kind of works. Ooh, the middle doesn't work. Or the lyrics are coming in the wrong place. So I'm going to edit out the lyrics by putting another bar of the intro because I yeah. don't want to do fear of my lines, spend an hour working on that, re-editing the song. Nope. And you do that over and over and over again until you find something that clicks. Yeah. And it is super, super hard. So the fact that Scorsese and Tarantino have the song in their head ahead of time. Yeah. And they're, and I'm sure sometimes it wasn't right. I'm sure Scorsese has many stories where he goes, I have this song. I picked it out yeah. and we went to edit it. It didn't work. I'm sure that's true. 
but a lot of the time it's not. And this one is astounding how good this song is. It's not the best one in the movie. He's still coming on some of those. But this one is really, really good. Yeah. And I love the moment Tommy comes in. Jimmy's talking to Billy. Henry is near the door. And first of all, Henry sees that it's about to happen. Yes. And I just wonder what his thought process, because he doesn't, he does not attack Billy, to be very clear. No, he runs over to try to stop Tommy. And if you watch yeah. just out of the corner of the left frame, Pesci waves off Leota's hands. So he's essentially yep. saying, you're not going to fucking stop me on this one. Yep. Whereas I'm sure, because as we saw earlier in the film, he stops Jimmy from killing Maury when mm -hmm. he's choking him with the phone wire. Here is another sequence where he's trying to stop Tommy from killing somebody. I am sure, at least the way they've presented Henry in the movie, I don't know in real life, obviously, that he tried to stop Tommy killing a number of people in situations. And sometimes he was successful and sometimes he wasn't. And this one he knew was super important to be successful because this guy's a made guy. I think it's with the Gambino crime family or whatever he mm -hmm. said. And so this is even more important. But Tommy was so – he just completely brushed past uh, uh, Henry and went right to uh, standing behind Jimmy. And the look – or standing behind Billy, rather. And the look on his face when he is waiting for Billy to turn around is one of just utter – um, I don't know, just utter rage. And then they just lay into, and Jimmy isn't surprised by it. Jimmy immediately joins in. So yep. these guys have done this a number of times, either with Henry in attendance and Henry not in attendance. And they already have a rhythm of how to kick the shit out of someone like this. Um, and it, it is on like Donkey Kong, man. <laughs> well, this is just, just to stick with Henry for one more second. Yeah, is, yeah. This is where my, my new framing of the movie that, he really isn't in Tommy and Jimmy's league at all. He is a foot soldier and one of many foot soldiers that they use sometimes and don't use sometimes. Right. And he's the guy who happens to be running this bar. And is that, that that's kind of how I'm seeing it now yeah. is like, he is not an important person, Henry. And then to go to Jimmy, I think Jimmy's been waiting all night. I think he is, he's oh. sitting there going, Tommy's going to come back. And the minute he sees Tommy coming towards him, he turns Billy, grabs him from behind. Oh. And the intensity and the violence of them beating the shit out of Billy Bats, in particular those low angle shots, which means that the you know the the DP is lying on the ground below De Niro and Pesci as they you know fake kick him, and I think they did kick him a couple of times because it's not in that control. And the gun going flying, and then suddenly, I mean the whole thing. And I love Pesci's overwhelmed by emotion at the mm -hmm. end of it, you know. I don't want to get blood on your floor. Because this is where it all comes from. Yep. To me, Tommy's anger comes, and look, I know I'm no psychiatrist, right? But like, I wonder if you could write a whole thesis on Tommy's anger coming from the mistreatment he endured from these guys growing up. And so they maybe instilled in him this loss of reverence for humanity, which allows him to kill with such um, impunity, with no fear, right? And no care about killing people, as we see later when he kills Spider. Um, you know, I'm a good shot. What do you want? This thing of his. So the anger that bubbles up in this moment, all, Tom, all Billy said to him was to go get his shine box. But what is coming out of Tommy is years and years of rage, Oh, yeah. of being seen as lesser than, being mistreated by these guys, not being respected by these guys. Uh, and it's all there, you know? And you're right to point out the emotion. And I love, as we were talking about the cuts earlier, 
when he hits um, Billy the last time with the gun and the bullets go flying yeah. to the ground and we hear the sound of the gunshot at the same time as he punches Billy for the last time with the 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 bullets to me represent Billy's teeth. And that's mm. the fucking shattering of Billy completely by Tommy. And it is it is a brutal, absolutely brutal. And yeah, De Niro's De Niro's foot stomps are scary as hell, man. Just scary as hell, dude. Well, and you know what? I think it's another parallel with the jerk that uh, Henry beat up with the gun. Because again, right. we're just beating on somebody. Hundred percent. And, yeah. and 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 this is this is why this is such a brilliant movie in how it seduces you. Because the first one we saw with this jerk, we kind of felt good. Fuck that yeah. guy. Right. And this guy was certainly rude to Tommy. I mean, no question about it. And we didn't like him. Right. But now we're going. And I think that what's critical to it is watching Ray Liotta's reaction. Yeah, he's of he's, like horror man he's like oh, yeah, fuck. Th- th- yeah this is not good and yes yeah, i can't oh, do anything and it's not good yeah and that and we see what well, we don't we don't get the like oh we're taking revenge on someone who overstepped and beat up a woman right. and you know we, we don't feel that we feel like oh these guys are really scary and the scene is scary and this is not i don't feel safe the movie is no longer safe you know yeah and this is what uh, and and look we may even you know as we just praised henry for what he did with that gun I'm sure Tommy taught him exactly how to do that. Put the gun in your hand and beat someone up with your fist and make it seem as if it's just your fist when it's really the gun in there as well. I'm sure Tommy taught him that. The other side of this, and I think this is great because this is the, as we're saying, we're going into this period now, we're seeing the flip side of this life. And David Chase did a wonderful job of doing this in The Sopranos. Every time you started to like Tony just a little bit more than you needed to, Tony would do something really fucking shitty whether it's insulting Janice for her Janice trying to get better and going to therapy and all this kind of stuff and walking out smiling after he destroyed another family dinner or, or some of the terrible shit he did to the women he was cheating on Carmela with, or some of the other stuff he did to the guys he was with, you know, Furio, those situations. He did terrible shit to people all the time while crying in a therapist office about how he needs to be loved by his mother. And these are these things. Tony is not legit. You would not like Tony in real life, but you like him as a character in the show. And David Chase did what what Coppola was unable to do with Michael Corleone and make you always check you at the door every once in a while that, hey, this is not a good person. So just be aware that you're liking this person. What does this say about you that you're liking this person? So I think there's an element of this as we go now with Scorsese flipping the coin on this life into these latter scenes here in the movie. And Billy Bats at the beginning, man. And this, I think I said, is my experience because I literally just watched The Sopranos for the first time Mm. over the last Mm. year. I don't like Tony. I never liked Tony. And so I could never get to the place, which is why it will never go down, even though I think it's a brilliant show in every Mm. way, performances, you know, direction, writing, everything. I will, it'll never be one of my favorite shows because I just hated all those people, you know? Like Tony never seduced me. The acting is fucking brilliant. It is. You know, whereas this movie is just long enough to seduce me for an hour. Yeah. You know, and then and then not. Whereas Sopranos couldn't sustain that with me. <laughs> um but I think now we you know, they wrap him up in a in a tablecloth and let's go to my mom's house to pick up her <laughs> shovel. <laughs> so we arrive at Tommy's mom's house in the middle of the night with a dead body or what we think is a dead body in the trunk. We need to go get the shovel without make, waking up mom. Did you ever think mom wasn't going to wake up? No. I mean, having a, a mom myself who would totally wake up whenever I came home, uh, you know, I, I thought it was a, 
um, a fool's errand to think that he wasn't going to wake up his mom. Can I ask you a quick, this question? Sure. Why does Martin Scorsese love putting his parents in his movies? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I don't know. Maybe he feels there's a thank you. Uh, maybe it's a way of keeping it in the family, even though he's working on a massive film with a huge budget and big studio behind it. Maybe it's a way of him making sure he keeps his feet on the ground, having my mom and dad around because his dad's going to show up in the prison sequences. And this is his mom here in the movie. And she's great. What? And it adds an authenticity, I think, to yeah. the film that maybe other people wouldn't necessarily be able to deliver 100%. So I think there's a lot of reasons probably why he puts his parents in the film. But that seems to be the one that makes sense to me. I, I think uh, this is a stupid thing I'm going to say, but I think I think he really loves his parents. I, I just, there's so much. Have you watched the short documentary he did called Italian Americans, which is just him filming his parents? Oh, no, I've never seen that. It's totally worth it. It's on this. I forget what streaming service is on. Okay. It's just, you know, 30 minutes of sitting with Martin Scorsese and his parents as they talk. Wow. Um, yeah. I, there's something so, as you said, real. And the, and the other thing I think is I think it changes the way you feel as an actor or a crew member showing up to the set when his mom is there right, and his mom is cooking for people and she's, you know, just this, it makes like, I, I want my film sets to feel like family and what sure. better way than to have your mom. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we talked about in the, um, am I a clown scene that it really was, it was built out of improv, but it was really written and scripted and gotten really locked down. That's not the case here. No. Catherine Scorsese is not memorizing lines. <laughs> She's and it's very just, clear. You can tell yeah. by the awkward looks, the pauses, the the delivery. Uh, everything about it screams uh, impromptu in the moment. Look, go inside, make oh, yourself no. comfortable. No, no, no. I'll go make you something to, go to eat. Sleep. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. No, I can't sleep. Not while he's home. No, I haven't seen him so long. No. I want to see him. You want to know what her question uh, for her son was when they were prepping to uh, do the scene? Please. She asked Marty, "What am I going to cook for him?" That was the question because uh, everything uh, they're eating is food that she cooked. Wow. And, and what Marty said was you should cook for them exactly what you would make for me when I would come home at three or four in the morning from a movie shoot, which was like eggs and beans and some pasta. And she, she went, okay, so this, she made what she would make for her son. And, and frankly, De Niro and Pesci for her, these are like her sons. Right. Of course she, she, they've known each other for so long. Of course. Yeah. And, and, and I love, I love, you know, they sit down to eat. This stuff is great, but it's like lead. So tell me, tell me, where have you been? I haven't seen you. I haven't even, you haven't even called or anything. Where have you been? For me, watching it, I can't not be aware of the body in the trunk and what's going on as I'm watching this scene. Well, and, and that's why the scene works. For all the, the idea of Catherine Scorsese and his mom and all of this, if, if you don't know that, right? Like, if you, we're in the bubble, Steve, so we kind of know that stuff. But if you yeah. don't know that, then what you're watching is, again, Scorsese using a, a regular moment that other people have experienced, you know, coming home late with their friends, their mom makes some food for them or warns up some stuff. We all, well, a lot of people have had that experience for sure, but it's juxtaposed with the fact yeah. that these guys have just absolutely beat up somebody and, and tried to kill him or thought they killed him uh, and left him in the trunk of the car right outside. So even in this domestic uh, moment that could be seen as a very sweet moment with three guys hanging out with the mother of one of the guys uh, and sharing food and making jokes. And, you know, we look at her painting. It's all done in the shadow of the fact that these guys have killed and stabbed and beaten to death a guy 
um, who they shouldn't have beaten to death. So there's violence combined with this domesticity that's an interesting juxtaposition in the scene. Well, and that comes out perfectly because as they're having small talk about the food and what they were doing and work and things like that, and the hoof. Pesci goes, yeah, he pulls out this big knife and says, I'm going to borrow your knife because we hit a deer. I hit him and uh, we hit the deer and his paw, what do you call it? The paw. The paw. paw, the, paw. The, hoof. the hoof got caught in the grill. Oh. I got I to gotta hack it off. In between bites, the hoof. Well, it was so it's so funny and gross because you because yeah. I know they didn't hit a deer. That right. knife is not going to cut up a deer. That yeah. knife is going to cut up a human being. Right. And then he's going to give the knife that he used to cut up a dead body back to his mom. Yeah. Yeah. So you remember how I said that Ray Liotta um, listened to the tape, didn't want to meet Henry Hill, but listened mm-hmm. to the audio tapes of him. And De Niro, on the other hand, was calling Henry Hill all the time to ask questions about Jimmy Burke and mm. what, how did he hold his cigarette? What did he laugh like? What, I mean, he's like literally calling him every single day. Right. One of his questions was, what does he like to eat? Mm. And Henry Hill told De Niro he puts ketchup on everything. That is why he is putting ketchup on his Italian food, on his homemade Martin, you know, it's Catherine Scorsese Italian food. He's putting ketchup on it. But he even asked the question of like, okay, so he's got the ketchup bottle. How does he pour it? Does he tap the back? Does he tap the front? Does he bang it on the table? And Henry Hill said, no, he takes it in his hands and he spins it between two palms to get the ketchup to come out. And you can see De Niro doing that in the scene. 100%. Yep. This is where I just go. It's like when some of the details that Coppola put into the Godfather films is like, Mm -hmm. is that detail important? Does this make the movie better? You know, was it worth De Niro calling and getting this? And it's like, I don't know the answer, but I so admire the guy that did it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that's happening, everyone is talking except Henry. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's have, I think he's very much us. I think when they start talking about the hoof and he's got the knife, I think Henry is, he's thinking about the body they're going to have to cut up in a minute. Yep. A hundred percent. And he, and he's always aware of the, the, the madness of the situation. Again, this is what makes Henry and Karen others in the situ in this whole movie, because they, although they're part of this life, they never fully dial into this life. And they're always aware of this life, aware of the uh, madness of this life. The idea that they can be having, you know, a simple meal here with the mother of uh, one of the guys in the crew while a dead body is literally outside in the trunk waiting to be buried. Like the, just the old relaxed nature of it all. And these guys are joking. So Henry is just kind of shocked as he's witnessing all of this because he has, no ability to separate what they've done uh, from just putting it aside and hanging out with some, with one of their friend's moms. Like it just, he doesn't have that ability. So it reads all across his face, how uncomfortable and unsettled by all of this that he is because he's not a sociopath or he's not a psychopath. Yeah. I think, I think Chris says he does a great job of separating him enough, making him enough like us mm-hmm. that we can continue to feel that sympathy for him. Totally weirdest moment in the in this scene for me and it, and scorsese insisted on this is did don't ever tell you about my painting no <laughs> that she has a painting sitting next to her at the dining room table that yeah. she shows up this painting was actually painted by nick Pelleggi's mother oh based on a national geographic cover <laughs> <laughs> it's just so this is where I, i'm just so be- like that 
this for me as a director thoughts like this would never in a million years have occurred to me like yeah. did tommy tell you about my painting and take it and then they think the painting kind of looks like billy bats and make jokes about that yeah yeah all right we are back driving in the car this is almost exactly one hour into the film and we right. return to the beginning fuck is that for most of the guys killings got to be accepted Murder was the only way that everybody stayed in line. You got out of line, you got whacked. Everybody knew the rules. This is very different from how we were introduced to the to the world at the beginning of the movie. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. Yep. The world is changing. The mm-hmm. This life is changing. The parameters of this life is changing, right? And this is detailed in The Godfather. This is detailed later in the film with Paulie sometimes when he's like, I can't control, like even earlier in the film, he's like, I can't control Tommy. What do you want me to do? I can't, you know, it's a new generation. And because these guys earn and they get the money, the guys who are at top are, um, how can I say, are hesitant to police these guys too hardly or too harshly because that could affect how much money is coming into their pocket. So it becomes this whole um, vicious cycle of how this repeats over and over again. And there's nothing to do about it because there's no changing these guys who are coming in as the new guard uh, in charge of, uh, in charge of these collections and in charge of these crimes. Well, I, I think about what state of mind one has to be able to put oneself in mm. to do what uh, Henry did to the asshole in front of Karen's house, yeah, you know, right. or doing it to Maury or whoever is that right. you have to be able to place yourself in a, in a mental state in an emotional state to do this kind of violence. Well, if you do that a lot, suddenly it doesn't seem so hard to get into that state. But sometimes even if people didn't get out of line, they got whacked. And then we introduce what's going to make this a really big deal. We had a, we had a serious problem with Billy Bats. This was really a touchy thing. Tommy had killed a made guy. Bats was part of the Gambino crew and was considered untouchable. I don't think I knew the term a made guy before Goodfellas. I can't remember if I did or didn't. But this is this is this thing is that there is a, a level of rank when you become a made guy as part of one of these crimes families, you become untouchable yeah. to someone who is not a made person that, you, you know, there's all sorts of politics you would have to go through to kill this person. And they didn't follow that stuff. And they're now going to be in deep shit. And this shows you the growing hubris of Tommy and Jimmy, that they they would willingly do this and just kind of risk the ramifications and the consequences of it all. And Jimmy already knows where he's going to bury him. I know this place up north. No one's ever going to look. Uh, and they just think they can get away with this. And this is an arrogance and a hubris, which is going to lead to the downfall of both of them uh, as the film goes along. And, and we should say that while we're hearing all this information, we're in that red, hellish yeah. world and the the way he approaches the violence here is even more graphic. Mm-hmm. Slow motion, the gunshots and the, the flashes of the gunshots yeah. make this really surreal space. It is super violent. It's super upsetting. Um, and then we end up where we did before, which is Henry closing the trunk and the camera pushing in on a now super, super red freeze frame of his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember, at the beginning, what is he saying? As long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Well, here we go an hour later, and we're seeing now what this desire of his has led him to in that moment. So initially, that moment is seen as a kind of great way, great um, entryway into understanding Henry and seeing the joy he feels in pursuing the life of becoming a gangster uh, as a teenager. 
Well, now we see as an older man what that life has, has brought to him and wrought on him uh, by the look on his face. So it's a, it's a smart like um, uh, juxtaposition, for lack of a better term, in connecting the, the same two shots, but with much more context in the second one as opposed to at the beginning of the movie. That that's that's such a great point. And I think because what happens is the first time it goes right into this romantic thing about the world of the gangster and it's all fun and it's all thrilling. And what we do now is we cut back to what was the most thrilling and romantic place, the Copa, which Mm -hmm. when we entered it before and followed that flying table in to sit down was like, it's so great to be a gangster. But now juxtaposed with what we just saw, we're back in the Copa. We're seeing a table fly in. And yet we feel completely different about it, I think, at this moment. Saturday night was for wives, but Friday night at the Copa was always for the girlfriends. Yeah, and here we go, right, Steve? We saw them beat up a made guy, stab him, uh, and then eventually shoot him and bury him. So that's the destruction of this fantasy life of being a gangster, right? Oh, you get to beat up the girl's. Uh, the girl who, the guy who assaulted the woman you love. Great. You get to pull off this heist and make all this money. Great. You get to, you know, get away with so many things that you're doing. Great. But piece by piece, this life is falling apart. And now this great romance that we were served up in the first hour between Karen and, um, and Henry and us believing that these two are others and out of, and don't do the same things that the other mobsters do. Well, here, let's destroy this beautiful love story now by bringing in the fact that Henry regularly cheats on his wife. You know, So it's just these deconstructions of this myth of Henry Hill at the beginning of the movie that the film makes around the hour mark starts to make the turn to, to destroy that myth that we have been kind of holding on to in the first hour. I think the organization of the affair, the fact that it's publicly, the system is Friday nights is for the girlfriends, for all of them together. Right. In the same place that they took their wives the next night. Right. That's what makes it so like messed up, I think. Um, by the way, his girlfriend is Janice Rossi, who's played by Gina Mastrio Giacomo. Mm-hmm. She died in 2001 at the age of 39. Yeah. Heart. She had a heart defect, unfortunately. Oh. And that's what led to her passing. Yeah. And then we have this moment where Tommy's date says, is talking about Sammy Davis Jr. and makes the mistake of saying, I mean, you can see how a white girl can fall for him. What? This does not go over well with Tommy. No, not at all. And I think it just reveals more about, I, I the thing that's, it's not that it doesn't reveal about his racism, that's obviously a part of this scene. But the bigger thing, I think, is it reveals more about his insecurity. Oh, 100%. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's always threatened by everything. Yeah. You know, and he's always feeling inadequate in every situation, which is what leads to his temperamental outbursts and violent outbursts. Not excusing it, understanding it. There's two different things there. Of course. Um, And the the song that is being sung is Pretend You Don't See Her by Jerry Vale. And the camera pans along all of them. And I don't know how you interpret this, but it looks to me like they're all really, really moved by this song. Yeah, very much so. And it's, I think, again, the sentimentality after seeing them, you know, the the horrible murder that we just saw is just yeah. this great and powerful contrast. Yeah. And we go from he drops Janice off at the his girlfriend at the apartment he's paying for her. And then he arrives with Karen and the kids at some event with Polly's. And that's yeah. now we're seeing the double life. What do you hear about that thing? <laughs> I think they both play it great. And Ray Liotta, just the perfect amount of hesitation and says... 
What thing? The Brooklyn thing? No, no, the guy from downtown. Now, to be clear, he knows what thing Paulie's asking about. Oh, yeah. Always. Paulie is asking about, and it's interesting to me, though, that Paulie can't say Billy Bats. He yeah. can't. He, it, everything has to be indirect. The guy from there where Christie used to live, then? No. The guy who disappeared up the block from Christie, the one that made the beef on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah, the guy I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that at this moment, Paulie suspects Henry, Tommy, and Jimmy? Yes. I think so, too. What's It was at Henry's place. And yeah. it's the last he's seen of him, and he knows how Tommy and he and I bet he's well aware of how Billy Bats used to bust Tommy's yep. balls. So yeah. And Henry, I, I, you know, we've said it many times on Cinephiles. I love lying in films because when the character lies, you can see so many layers. And I think Henry does a above average ver- version of a lie, but yeah. not a great one. Yeah. Nobody knows what happened to him. He came into the joint that one night, and then he just disappeared. That was it. But what we hear is that apparently Polly has been taking pressure from the Gambino organization, I assume, to find that. Yeah. Listen to this. We got a real problem. You know that thing we took care of upstate? Polly was just talking about that. How to get it out of there. Because apparently they're going to build condominiums, and they're going to find the body. Of course. Yeah. If we thought this space looked like yeah, descent into hell before. <laughs> like we're in this low angle. It's super red. It obviously yeah. s- smells horrible. Henry is throwing up. And Tommy and Jimmy, they're just making jokes. Because they're psychopaths, man. And look, it's funny to laugh in this moment, especially when yeah. uh, Tommy says, hey, Henry, you want a wing? You want a wing? Yeah. But like you're laughing at uh, psychopaths, you know, who are so little value for human life that they would joke about removing body parts of someone that they just killed out of the ground. Uh, and clearly both of them have been around dead bodies before that have been decomposed for a while because neither one of them are coughing or having issues. It's Henry who's having issues, you know? Yeah. Well, and it also shows, I mean, what you said before is that Henry is a really bad guy, but closer to us, closer to a normal human than these two guys are. It's so, it's so funny. I think people, tend to associate humor with happiness and good things. Right, right. And and so some people will get offended by, well, that's a horribly violent thing. You can't joke about that. And it's like, no, a lot of our humor comes from dealing with pain and upset yeah. and reversal and embarrassment and sadness. And that's yeah. some of the fun. That's what we need humor for, you know? The best elements of humor, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Henry's hosing out his car later on. Apparently, he really never could get the smell out of this car and finally just sold the car. I love Karen's reaction. Oh my God. <laughs> we're, we're at Janice's place and she's giving a tour with some girlfriends and looking mm-hmm. at all the stuff. And we see one of the people we see is Sandy. Who's going to become an uh, important character. And this is Debbie Mazar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we find out that because of this affair, she was messing up at work and she got in trouble with her boss. So cut to let's beat up the boss and say, she, so now Janice doesn't even have to come into work. Right. Right. Um, and I love the cut from him, them beating up the boss to him throwing Janice on the bed and playing yeah. right from violence to play. Yeah. Um, and then what I really like is as they're walking out of the room and he's just been flirting with and playing with Janice on the bed. Now he makes eye contact with Sandy, who very clearly makes eye contact with him. And I love that as she's backing out, looking at him, that she bumps her hip yeah. on like a counter or something. I think that is just critical to making that connection work in that moment. A hundred percent. 
And Debbie Mazar, I mean, this is one of her first roles. She is absolutely sexy as hell in that moment. There's animalistic energy between those two, for sure. But it also shows you Henry's, like, I don't give a fuck approach. Like, literally, in the bedroom of the woman that he's already cheating on his wife with, he's looking to cheat on the woman he's cheating with uh, already with one of her friends, for God's sake. So, yeah. Well, so this is what, you know, it was interesting in in watching The Sopranos, because you Mm. see this happening all the time. It's like the life of one of these wives, because they're not dumb, you know? Yeah. Let's play poker. <laughs> hey, Spider! Hey, hey, way over here. Bring me a cutting water, huh? And there is Michael Imperioli. Yeah, young Michael Imperioli. Very young and very. He doesn't. I think he does such a good job of being eager, a little scared, a little yeah. not too bright, a little you're trying to do, trying to figure out what he's supposed to be doing and right. failing. Spider's not smart. No. He wasn't long in this way. Look, he wasn't long for this life. If it wasn't Tommy, someone else was going to kill him, you know? Um, And he's messed up the drink, and Tommy starts giving him shit for not bringing the drink. Henry, you know you're a fucking mumbling, stuttering little fuck. You know that? I thought you said it was, I was all right, Spider. So you... No, you ain't all right, Spider. You got a lot of fucking problems. No, I thought you said you were all right, Spider. I am all right. You ain't all right, you little fucking That's prick. What... And it's so funny, because I think it's critical that we already had the am I a clown, do I amuse you scene before we right. get into this. Because the degree to which Tommy is really mad is now we really don't know. We're, we're, we can't know what's really going on here. Right. And then he remembers like this. He's trying to remember this Western where someone made someone dance and he pulls his gun out. Yeah. And everyone gets scared as he's waving this gun around. And, and then he shoots on the floor to make spider dance and immediately shoots him in the foot. Yeah. Well, because he's drunk and he's, Slightly out of control, and he's a malevolent guy. So did he intend to miss? I don't know with Tommy, right? And he shoots him right in the foot. Um, and again, this is something we we spoke about earlier. Tommy is spider to Billy Bats, and here is Tommy essentially repeating the cycle, right? We yep. hear that about people who are in abusive relationships with their parents, that they when they become parents – carry on that abuse to their children. This is in essence that, right? Tommy was probably supremely embarrassed and and um, ridiculed by Billy Bats and other guys of Billy Bats' age at that time for doing The Shining and all of that. And so he's now being Billy Bats to, to, to Spider and making fun of him and calling him a stuttering, muttering prick. Rather than being understanding, he's worse to him in order to kind of make himself feel like He's fully a Billy Bats type, and he's not that Spider type anymore. He probably hates Spider for reminding him so much of himself. As you spoke about earlier, Steve, the idea of inadequacy, right? Seeing someone who reminds him of himself when he was younger, uh, the fact that he wants to shoot him and then later shoots him again and kills him. It's just this way of like horribly dealing with his trauma from that time. You know, when we talked about the Am I a Clown scene, mm. we talked about what was the potential for it actually to be violent, you know? Is yeah. It, is it, and I think maybe the first time I watched that scene, I was just like, oh, it was all an act, you know? Right. Like, this is just that, that Tommy is in control of this. He knows what he's doing. He's playing Henry, and that's what's happening. Right. And as I've watched it more, I go, no, I don't think Tommy knows the answer. Right. Right. And I think, so when you asked, did he intend to shoot his foot? Like, I don't think, I don't think Tommy knows how, 
real how much he's fucking with spider and how much he's really angry with spider and how much i don't he's just not in control you know no no 100 percent, right um and the lack of just like when you when i accidentally shoot someone in in the foot i tend to not continue to insult them after i've done so (laughs) that's what's just so horrible this is just like going come on don't get me upset now i'll make a big fucking thing out of it spidey a little and then they go right back to playing poker yeah yeah karen is now mad yeah i think you know unlike when it was the scene with mom where she was defending henry now it's been long enough, and I think she knows, you know, that Friday nights is for girlfriend. She started to figure that out. She says, you're not going out tonight. Throws the keys out the window. Karen, will you grow up? Stop. I'm still going to go out. Not without your car keys, you're not. Are you nuts? Are you fucking nuts? What's your problem? Yes, I'm nuts. Something's going on. I love this moment, by the way, where she's like trying to, you know, I know you're lying. Admit it. Admit it. And he turns away from her, hmm. grabs a lamp turns back and throws it and right at her and she ducks and it's such a good timing such a great moment you know and he gaslights her you're fucked up in the head karen this is all in your mind you're a lousy bastard you got a problem go ahead go to your ready-made horse that's all you're good for she screams as she throws his suits in the closet and that scream goes perfectly into in henry's laughing as they go away, and that goes into cheering. <laughs> and we're back to playing poker. And the first, the second thing we see as we go back into this poker game is that big bandage on Spider's foot. Hey, Spider, that fucking right. bandage on your foot is bigger than your fucking head, you know that? Come on, <laughs> Fucking bullshit of you. And then yeah. Spider does exactly what Henry does during the Am I a Clown scene. Right. He, yeah, there's a certain point where he Tommy keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and then Henry laughs and says get the fuck out you know get the fuck out of here in this moment Spider with a lot less confidence says yeah. why don't you go fuck yourself Tommy and there's a huge reaction around the room I couldn't believe what I just heard I love De Niro oh you know yeah and it's also the billy bat scene you know yes like it's it's the it's we've gone from joking to not joking right and, uh, yeah i agree de niro's because what de niro is doing is he's giving tommy shit in a friendly way yeah because he's treating it the way that he you would treat what happened with henry and tommy in the previous right. scene you know and it's, and it's spider like it's it's he's an irrelevant guy yeah so okay spider found his nuts it's not a big deal but tommy Oh man. And Pesci plays this moment so well. If you watch, if you guys go back and rewatch the scene, just focus on Joe Pesci's performance as they're all giving him shit, as they're all questioning him. And especially when Jimmy goes, you're going to take that Tommy, you're going to take that. All the color drains out of his Mm. face and he's just staring at spider with the uh, anger. This is not a, this is the thing you have to understand. People who are passionate, angry, like kind of like me, right? People who are passionate, angry, when they're passionate and angry, they're just angry, right? When they go silent, that's when you should really be fucking afraid because then everything is, there is no uh, limits. There is no histrionics. There's a very clear purpose. And I think when you watch, and I've had those moments three or four times in my life where uh, all the bullshit stops and I'm ready to go. And this moment here with Tommy uh, is the same thing. We've seen Tommy, like when he shot him the first time, he's like, oh, you know what, it's a big deal. But you see everything is like, he's gone still. And he's just staring at Spider, 
and then out of nowhere just pulls the fucking pistol and sh- kills him just shoots him dead man and it's it's such a shocking moment much more than the shot to his foot this one is shocking so that even jimmy who's been defending tommy and participating in tommy's shit is shocked out of his mind and goes after tommy in a way that he doesn't go after him in any other scene in the movie up to this point so joe pesci demanded that he have 100 full load blanks so people i don't know how many people are aware of this but when you have blanks you could have it's, it's how much gunpowder you actually put in the blank right. you could have a quarter load you could have a half load you have a full load and most of the time you don't use full loads because a they're much more dangerous yeah. you know because you can get killed by a blank if it's close enough yeah. and b it's really 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 loud yeah but that's why pesci wanted the full load blanks is he wanted when he shot that gun to to it to be deafening because in a closed space it is really really loud and it was apparently shocked that part of de niro's performance i mean not that de niro needed it but like you know this real loudness on the set <laughs> Michael Imperioli threw himself so hard back into the bar that he slammed into some glass and cut his hand and had to be taken to the hospital. Ooh, for real. (laughs) And what's so funny is that he had to be taken to the hospital and he's had a blood pack. So his chest, he looks like he has chest wound. So he goes in and they're like, oh my God, stop. And they start cutting his shirt open. He's like, no, no, it's my hand. I was on a movie. (laughs) No, stop. This is a prop shirt. No, I'm oh. gonna have to pay for this. <laughs> um, and and just the as you said, the just disgust with Tom. And you know what? I shouldn't say that. It's not disgust. The there's a huge what the fuck did you just do? Right. But there isn't like sadness over Spider. Tom, I'm kidding with you. What the fuck are you doing? Are you what a fucking fuck? sick maniac? I don't know if you're kidding. What do you mean you're kidding? You're breaking my I'm, fucking balls. I'm fucking kidding with you. You fucking shoot the guy. And and I love how Jimmy goes. Now you're gonna dig the fucking thing up. You're gonna dig the hole. You're gonna do it. I got no fucking lime. You're oh, gonna fuck do it. cares. I'll dig the fucking hole. I don't give a fuck. Was the first hole I dug? There's no sympathy for Spider. There's more nope. just shock at the fact that that um, Tommy did this in a place that they've come to kind of escape from all the bullshit. Do you know what I'm saying? Have fun playing poker and, and give each other shit. So yeah, yeah. yeah. It, the the response is that was stupid. This is a pain. This is you created a pain in the ass. Yes. Not again. Again, you, yeah. Again, um, the studio was one hundred percent against this scene and demanded it be taken out of the movie. What? Yep. Wow. Yep. This was a huge fight. They're like, really? It's too upset. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it just shows this is you know like Mike Vogel is an, has been an executive, excellent executive. Mike Ross is an executive, excellent executive. They're great executives out there. But yeah. studios, this is why studios aren't the people that make movies. You know? <laughs> and then we point. cut from one really upsetting scene to another really upsetting and intense scene with Karen buzzing the door of Janice's apartment with her kids in tow. And Lorraine Bracco is just incredible oh, with yeah. the intensity in this scene. Yes, I want you to know, sir, that you have a whole living in tow. Rossi! Janice Rossi, do you hear me? Those are actually Lorraine Bracco's kids. Oh, funny. <laughs> I guess that's a way to make sure they pay attention and do what you tell them to do. I, I, it's so funny. Like, there's some things where it's like using your own kids in the movie makes sense to me. And this is like, you don't want your kids to see you like this. <laughs> but they're little kids. They're like three, four-year-olds. Like, they can't tell the difference with pretend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the, the, mommy looks really upset. 
<laughs> um, by the way, Lorraine Bracco says that it was her idea to bring the kids in, not just her idea to use her own kids, but her idea to have the kids with her in this scene. Oh, wow. Um, but it's not true because Karen Hill in the book says she brought her kids to Janet to the apartment. So, oh, so, so it actually, oh, okay. Right. This is what, this is what actually happened. Right on. And the intensity as she's screaming into that intercom and then screaming at the people at the windows and calling the superintendent. Hmm. It's just, and Janice inside the apartment listening to all this, it's just horrible. Yeah. But I, I love the scene because like, it's, it shows you yet again that like Karen is not um, part of this world. Karen is yet another, there's another, this is yet another example of how Karen is an other in this world as a wife to this guy, right? As a wife to this mafia guy. Cause I'm sure the other wives didn't do that and understood right. that their guys had women on the side. Right. Um, and in fact, they were probably coming up. They were probably the women of someone who was married and then eventually found their own husband and what have you. So um, with this situation, Karen knocking on the door or sorry, ringing the bells. I love the way this is shot. We go to her fingers on the things we go to. We pan to a wider shot of her yelling. We She's calling the superintendent and saying she's a whore. And then you have Janice just all curled up on a couch, completely ashamed and embarrassed of this whole sequence. So to me, I love that this is her kind of reclaiming a little more power in the situation and the way they show it, how she's different than the other wives because she's willing to confront this woman who is having sex with her man. She's very much a, a person who respects her marriage. At least we thought so. In real life, obviously, she was uh, reportedly rumored to be having an affair with, with Big Pauly, So, hmm. Oh, I did not know that. That's a oh, little really? Oh, I, I thought we know. talked about that in part one. No. Holy no. shit. So we haven't talked about it. Okay, well. No. Keep that in your mind for a scene that's coming up. But yes, uh, in real life, in doing research for the show, I, you know, looking at fact versus fiction, there are quite a lot of um, spec. There's quite a lot of speculation that Karen in real life was having an affair with Polly, and when Henry would go to jail, she would turn to Polly to help her and take care of her and uh, have sleep with and all this stuff. So there's speculation that that was going on in this relationship as well. So yeah. That's a whole other thing. And that relates a lot to another something else I'll bring up as we get as we get a little further along that I might relate to it. Um, and then we as, as we've done throughout this film, we cut from chaos and intensity and fast pace to a still quiet moment of a gun pointed directly at camera with Karen obviously straddling her husband real close to killing him. Yeah. And of course, to do this, she's not straddling Ray Liotta. She's straddling the director of photography. <laughs> and and what she said, what, what Lorraine Brocco said was the hardest thing is that doing this, she's looking directly into the camera, which yeah. means on the lens is a big reflection of her face. Right. And the gun. Yeah. And the gun. That's hard to act to. I agree. And the the quietness and the calmness. She wakes up Henry and then she pulls back the hammer and she's got her finger on the trigger. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is a hair trigger. I don't know how many pounds you need to pull that back, yeah. but Henry's real close to dying. Um, and by the way, I should say that for the reverse shots of Henry Hill when he's on the bed, that's the the DP is straddling uh, Ray Liotta. That's how you do that. And this is where, you know, we talked about when there was the kid that was playing Henry, that part of the thing about mm. his character was that the, you know, the wise guys saw that there was steel in this person. Mm -hmm. 
they're stealing this person, you know, because yeah. he is very calm because he knows how close he is. Yeah. Yeah. He knows Karen. Yeah. He knows she could. And I was thinking, I was thinking the first time I've thought this in watching the movie, Steve, is this the same gun that he had her? Oh, uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like the same totally. gun that Henry used to beat up the guy who was trying to um, violate the woman he loves. Here is the possibility that that's the same gun Karen is using, which cemented their relationship. Remember, she says in voiceover, I found it sexy. And the next shot is them getting married. And I wonder if this is the same gun she is using on Henry as a way of displaying uh, yet again, another person who was violating her and that gun being involved. And that's ironically the man who defended her initially. So, yeah. So I am just looking right now, and I can't <laughs> tell. They're both revolvers. Right. They're both revolvers. snub nose revolvers. Yeah. But it looks it looks to me like the first gun is a darker gun metal, and the, mm. the gun that she has now is more silver, but that also could be the lighting. Could and be the I lighting. Kinda, I kind of want it to be the same gun. Yeah. So it, it might not be the same gun, but I kind of, because I think that is brilliant. Okay. Do you love her? Do you? I love you. You know I love you. And then we hear in her voice over. The truth was that no matter how bad I felt, I was still very attracted to him. Yeah, she says two things here. She says, like, um, do you love her? This is what she says out loud to Henry, which is what, you know, I've heard from a number of women that, like, the physical cheating, of course, is tough. And it's difficult to get past. It's the emotional cheating that's really the hardest to get past and the betrayal on on that level, right? So that's her concern. Do you love her? Like, is she going to destroy our family? Are you leaving me? Because of all the sacrifices I've made to be your wife, all the lines I've crossed, all the things I've violated in my own personal morality code. And then what she says there, I think, is what happens to a lot of people in codependent relationships. She's like, well... How could I let him? I was still attracted to him. I still wanted him. And who is she? Fuck her. She's not going to get my man. You know, it's it becomes a competitive thing, you know, because he has positioned himself as the breadwinner and her, she has no career. She has no separate sure. income coming in. So there's all these other things. And kids, there's all these other factors that get involved in situations like this. You know, so. Yeah. The line that, and this is just not how my brain works, is why should I give him to someone else? Why should she win? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's like, well, I mean, she is attracted to him. But yeah, like she if you, you she is not winning by getting a person that you hate if you don't want to be with that person anymore. Yeah. She's losing. You know what I mean? But that is how she feels. And he's still trying to calm her down. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment that she just starts to waver. Yeah. And then he moves fast, grabs her takes the gun, they roll off the bed, and he is on top of her. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, when the gun went flying as they rolled off the bed, one oh, of yeah. the times it hit the DP right in the head. Huge, huge bruise. Wow. Uh, and so Lorraine Bracco the next day brought him a pith helmet <laughs> to protect him, <laughs> which I think is really cute. And then he hits the nightstand and and he heads out and she just sobs, falling to the ground and then screams. <laughs> Yeah, this, again, their relationship is a mixture of violence and sexuality, always. 
she's straddling him with that gun, right? She could be standing at the foot of the bed with the gun, just as much, just as powerful of a stance. Um, but the fact that she's straddling him is an interesting moment. You know, there are some people who are very turned on by hints of violence mm-hmm. uh, mixed in with sexuality, right? And so her straddling him, I think, is an element of that. But then when he knocks her off, which is a pretty harsh scene, but when he's on top of her, her legs are curling up around him as if mm-hmm. almost in a pseudo-sexual position. So it's an interesting moment. And so she's she's probably, as she said earlier, when he beat the guy up with the gun, she's both excited and scared at the same time in this moment with Henry having the gun at her face. You know, So just watching Lorraine Bracco's legs move mm-hmm. in those 1970s sheer pantyhose, it's a kind of a sexual movement as his leg is between her legs. Uh, and then, of course, she unleashes the I'm sorry, which she'll say more than once. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting moment. Well, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, their whole relationship, it, it it hasn't just been influenced by violence. I, I don't think their relationship exists without violence. Well, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, great point. Yeah. Um, we're at Janice's apartment, and Polly and Jimmy have come for a visit. I just love this scene. <laughs> The scene is so great because apparently Karen has gone both to Polly and to Jimmy and they're just going. I'm not saying you got to go back there this minute, but you got to go back. I mean, it's the only way. And then I love De Niro. <laughs> he goes, I got the two of them coming over the house every day, commiserating the two of them. I can't have it. I can't have it. <laughs> I love the way he delivers that repetition. Right. You know her. She's crazy, but I can't have yeah. it. And, and the th- and right, what he's saying is, I can't have another influence on the woman I know talking her into these things that she's going to confront me with. I can't have it. But what happens a few seconds later, Paulie says something, and this is what I'm connecting to with the, the story mm. that I've heard. Oh, that I, yeah, that I yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Paulie says, All right, I'm going to talk to Kara. I'll straighten this thing out. I know just what to say to her. So... That, I wonder, is Scorsese's really, or Pelleggi's really, really subtle reference to the fact that there were rumors that they were having an affair behind Henry's back as well, or Henry knew and couldn't do a thing about it because Paulie was the the head guy. So a lot of people have speculated that that might be a little bit of a reference to that, because why would Paulie know how to talk to her? Like, how would Paul? We've seen no scenes where Paulie is kind of had a one-on-one with Karen and sat down with Karen and had like a back and forth. They haven't had late night calls. How would he know how to talk to her exactly how to talk to her? You know? So, so references to that possibly. You, you want to know what's crazy is, is that line stuck out for me too, mm. particularly when, when he repeats it and says, I know how to talk to her, especially to her. Yeah. Especially to her. Yeah. And so literally sitting in my notes right there is, Ask John why he says, especially to her, what does Polly know about Karen? Well, there you go. So apparently you, so you, you anticipated this. That's why you're the best damn podcast partner, sir. Um, yeah. I, 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 and I like the end too. It's like, cause the, Henry has no choice here. This is, yeah. this is not just like your friends coming to talk to you about a relationship. This yeah. is your mob boss coming to you and saying, this can't happen. Yeah. Um, well, particularly because the crazier, and, and this is things that obviously happen in The Sopranos, the more stressed and crazy Karen gets, the more likely she is to do something dangerous to the organization, you know? Yeah, exactly. And mess with the things that they're doing, for sure. There's a song called Foolish 
by this uh, singer called a singer named Ashanti. Um, and it's an, it's a version of like that. And, and she does a singing version of that, which of course, uh, notorious B.I.G. used for, I think one more chance. He did a rap version of it in the nineties. This song came out and they used the good fellas template for the entire video. Oh, and wow. it stars Terrence Howard as essentially the Henry Hill character in the video. And Ashanti plays the Karen uh, of the video. And they have the two, uh, fat Joe and I forget the other producer who comes in and they essentially sit there and repeat this scene in the middle of the video where they go, you gotta go home. You gotta go yeah. home. I can't have you. You gotta go home. And so if anybody wants to watch the video, if we remember to post it on the Facebook group, I think it's, it's a fascinating um, homage to Goodfellas and how it can influence people, influence people in the rap game, how these Italian movies have influenced people in the rap game uh, in many ways, or these gangster movies, rather, shall I say, regardless of, gen- of uh, ethnicity, have influenced people in the rap game. So, um, I definitely want to see it. That sounds great. <laughs> um, and then to create a little space, they send them down to Tampa where there's some guy that owes the money and it doesn't really matter, you know, what it's about. We end up taking him to the Tampa Zoo. And I love that the uh, the upside down shot as they hang him over the, you know, the lion enclosure. They must really feed each other to the lions down there because the guy gave the money right up. I swear to Christ, I'll get the money. And we got to spend the rest of the weekend at the track. By the way, apparently when they did this, they then they went out and just partied all weekend with that guy. Yeah, with that guy. Yeah. yeah, who they had just beaten up and threatened to throw in with the lions. But the problem is that guy had a sister and she was working for, as a typist for the FBI. This is all true. And she gave up everybody. <laughs> Took the jury six hours to bring us in guilty. Judge gave Jimmy and me 10 years like he was giving away candy. And then we have kind of the, the going away party. There's toast. Karen is crying. Everyone is embracing everyone. He hugs her outside, gets in a car takes a whole handful of pulls dry and then looks at the driver and says, now take me to jail. I love the way this is done, right? Cause, um, do you ask a question before we wrap up here? Do you think Paulie went in with the already intention to send him to Florida? Like you, you, you take a break, you'll go down there, you'll vacation, but you're going to get this money. You're going to get me my money. So it's kind of a mixture of both. He really doesn't ha- send him down there to relax. He sends him down there to do the job. Then he's going to get to relax. But when he comes back, you know, it's a whole setup. Is it possible that Paulie knew who this guy's sister was and was maybe setting up Henry? Because if it's true that he was he was having an affair with Karen, maybe he, maybe he wanted some time with Karen, so he sets up Henry to go down there and essentially get caught uh, and get sent to prison. Of course, Paulie gets sent to prison for obstruction of justice for a year as well. So I don't know, just thoughts that occurred in my head when I was looking at all of this, because how would you not know this guy's sisters uh, works for the FBI? Like how you not vet this situation? It just seems odd to me. Well, I, so, so it's, see, I don't, I, I, my gut is that that's not the case because you don't want mm. your people that know about you getting arrested for anything. Cause every time they get arrested mm. and particularly cause this is a 10 year, this isn't like, you know, 30 days. This is, yeah, this a, is no, a big uh, yeah, set of time. Yeah, yeah. So, so I would think that would happen. I, I, I do, but I want to go back to your comment about how, come on, how they not know the sister works for the FBI. Yeah. I always go back to the line in all the president's men where, um, Hal Holbrook, the deep throat character, as they're speculating about what's going on says, you got to remember these guys just aren't that smart. (laughs) That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah. All the time we hear all these conspiracies. Could it be this? It could it be that. That's the sentence that always goes in my head. You got to remember these guys aren't that smart. Henry said the only reason you get arrested is because you want to get caught. But 
these guys aren't. I mean, we, we how many things have we seen them do from killing Billy Bats and killing Spider to yeah. handing a bloody gun to the, to Karen to like the, these guys aren't that smart, you know. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Um. So, but at this moment, as we head into jail, before we get a delicious jail made meal with fantastic pasta sauce and disappearing garlic slices, we're going to take a break. Of this part of our exploration of Goodfellas, of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. On Twitter, we're Cine underscore Files. The Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Please leave your comments on YouTube. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. If you want to buy or stream Goodfellas along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, you can do it at cinephiles.net. And if you want to support the show where you can ask questions about upcoming episodes you can suggest films suggest shorts join our advisory board do all sorts of fun stuff you can do that patreon.com slash the cinephiles and if you want to reach me you can do it at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram john how would people reach you you can always reach me at the roca says on twitter instagram and tiktok the outlaw nation on twitch yeah and i want to push i'm I'm trying to push my social media more and more and i know we have hundreds of thousands of people and tens of thousands of people weekly who listen to our show. And I'd love for you all to follow me. You know, I've been stuck at 31,400 for quite some time. And I know getting more people to follow me on social media helps to elevate what I'm doing, but also helps to elevate the cinephiles, elevate all the shows that I'm connected to. So please come and follow me there at the Roca says on Twitter and Instagram and the outlaw nation on Twitch. And then my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, I would very much appreciate it. Thank you. I have followed and subscribed to all of those places. And I definitely think that you should too. So that's it for this week. We'll be back next week to maybe conclude our exploration of Goodfellas. I hope so. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit right here on the cinephile. See you then. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.